Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Vax. And thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How's it going? Well, I'm in a goofy mood now. <laughs> uh, but um, here's what's going on. Actually, I'm in the middle of a little, like, uh, uh, personal uh, crisis here. Do you want to Do you want to bring in the guests first? No, no, first, this is or? a tiny little thing that is dumb. Okay. Do you ever make... It's not even like bets, like little like challenges to yourself that are completely stupid. Uh, constantly, it's okay. quite exhausting. I have in front of me, as you've noticed, this thing of Blue Diamond brand salt and vinegar flavored almonds. Bold. They're bold. Yeah, I bought them. I was hungry, uh, leaving work on the way here. I stopped at Ralph's and I bought them. I, I went to like the snack aisle. I saw them there. I saw the size. It's not very big. Right. This thing. It's um, like a can of cat six, food. Six almost. ounces. Yeah. Uh, a little bigger than that, but yeah. Um, I saw the thing, and I said to myself, I'm going to buy that. I'm going to eat all of them. Okay. It's a snack food. It's a, It's not meant... This isn't like a... This isn't a meal. But No, it's not. But I decided I was going to treat it like that. And here's the thing. Well, you'll eat all... Did you specify how, how long you were going to give yourself to eat all of them? Uh, before I go to sleep tonight. Oh, I'm okay. To eat all of them. Well, that's totally feasible. You'd think so. Okay. Like I said, they're salt and vinegar flavored. They're very, very strong. Well, could, a little more. Than would you halfway, say they're a little too bold? Maybe a little too bold. A little okay. more than halfway through, and I'm considering. I don't know. Maybe I'll just set them aside for the length of the episode. See how I feel then. But I'm starting to worry that I'm not going to be able to live, live up to my challenge. So it's just one more failure. See, that's exactly. what I do. Is uh, I say like I used to do it more when I was a kid because uh, I was insane, and I'd just be like. Okay, I bet I can make it to the end of the block. Uh, here's what would happen: is like I'd be watching TV, and it's like okay, commercials, and commercials were always it. Okay, I bet I can make it to the refrigerator by the time this commercial is over. Okay, I, I did it. I bet I can get something to eat by the time this one is over, and have it m- ready and made, you know, made and ready to eat by the time this commercial is. Oh, I didn't make it. Yeah. Oh, I'm such a failure. Like, that's usually where I went next. <laughs> at, at my so, old yes. work, it used to be like, I bet I can make it all the way down the hall to the bathroom with my eyes closed. Oh, eyes closed stuff. I used to do that all the time, yeah, too. I tough. still kind of do. Let's bring in our guest and see if he has, has done these sort of challenges. I'm going to say by his expression, no. <laughs> um, uh, we know him well. If you're devoted fans of us, you know him well, because we've both been on separate occasions on his own podcast. I like to say real fans. Yeah. If you're real fans of If you're real of fans us. of Battleship Pretension. Um which you should be. Uh, more on that later. Um, <laughs> uh, his podcast is is called the Benny South Street Chronicles. It's a uh, it's a podcast about community theater. I'll let him talk about it. He's also a uh, up and coming, some would say struggling, perhaps stand up comic. Um, he also wait, hold on. Restores action. What do you do to? Uh, uh, I'm an action figure customizer. A- customizes action figures. Yeah, that's how I met Tyler initially. Actually. In his spare time. Yeah. So uh, it, but not you're for being free. very flattering, by the way. I was I had actually planned to say at the outset I wanted to reassure your listeners that there is no reason why they should ever have heard of me. I just named three reasons yeah, why well, they should have heard of you. Absolutely. So, I'm, but, but I'm not some not underground he- sensation. Did you not I- hear struggling? <laughs> Come on, that's so noble. Yeah, yes. Here's what I didn't remember to do was to confirm the proper pronunciation of your last name. So here we go. I'm going to guess at it, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Dave Amiot. Yes, very it's a good. Long a. Thank you. It is. Yes. Yeah. When I spell it phonetically. I do capital A Y, then M E E O T T. So, okay. A me ot. Do you have to do that frequently? Uh, sometimes I do it at open mics or. You know, oh, okay, yeah, that's because that's the kind of that you don't have to do that. <laughs> uh, man, I hope people get what we're doing, and then we're not just laughing like a bunch of drunken fools. <laughs> so. Well, Paul Goebel had some trouble. 
Paul Gogol has trouble with a lot of things. (laughs) So, um, okay. So, all right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I'm happy to be here, and I I appreciate your your words of confidence. Um, No problem. We're happy to have you, but and we'll get to know you more about you in a moment. First things first, though. David is stressed out. He's angry. David, what's going on? No, I'm, I'm definitely running hot. I got a chip in my shoulders. Um, Both shoulders. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We got a double chip situation. I got a I got a chip That's in bad. my shoulders and I got almonds in my belly <laughs> oh, and I'm ready bitch. to go. Um, I was I was saying more people should be fans of us or they they should be real fans of us and uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you why we are you know to be glib better than other uh, <laughs> internet. Film critics uh, of our of our ilk, and I'm being I'm being actually completely tongue. Do you want to name there. names there, David? I will name a name in a bit, but oh, not, not in a, but in a nice way. And here I'll tell you why I'm going to name names because um, things have happened on this podcast before where I haven't named names. And to his credit, friend of the show Dave Chen from the Slash mm. Filmcast has in person called me out on it. Oh, okay, saying that if I'm gonna toss around accusations or whatever i should you know put my money where my mouth is and say what i what i mean that's bad news for those almonds but uh, <laughs> uh only uh, only if it's salt and vinegar money um <laughs> so uh but no this isn't actually uh, and i'm willing to do it here because i'm not actually saying anything mean um but i, I i've been listening to i listen to film spotting regularly okay um it's one of my favorite film podcasts. Uh, and I, t- uh, I tend to... Here's how I listen to all podcasts. I listen to a chunk of a podcast, and then I'll go alphabetically through, and I'll come back. So by the time I circle back, I've got 10 weeks of podcasts. Mm-hmm. So I'm consistently 10 weeks behind on any podcast. So I've been catching up on, on film spotting. And um, their uh, Massacre Theater thing, I won't go into what that is if you don't know what it is. Just listen to film spotting. Uh, but it's... You have to guess a movie based on the clues or whatever. And it was Back to the Future. Uh, and, you know, the, the next week, it was actually um, uh, Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore uh, from the great and dearly departed IFC News podcast were filling in. Mm-hmm. And Matt uh, Singer expressed some surprise that Back to the Future, the Back to the Future Massacre Theater wasn't one of the most entered contests in film spotting history okay and i think this is a thing with a lot of uh, probably probably film critics of all ages but i know it i notice it of film critics and film podcasters and bloggers particularly internet internet based type things of our age all right back to the future is a, is a good movie it's a very good movie mm-hmm. but the thing is you could go through life Never having seen Back to the Future, and it wouldn't hurt your ability to consider yourself a film lover. It's not part of the canon. Okay. It's good. It's not great. But people treat it like it's the best movie ever made because of nostalgia, basically. Okay. And uh, what, what, what I, what I want to get across here is that this whole idea... I, I hate whenever there's a remake coming out and you hear... the. Uh, phrases uh, that they're doing awful, some sort of awful thing to your childhood. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't give they're a fuck. They're teasing your childhood. They're sure, pushing yeah. it around. I don't give a fuck about your childhood. I'm sure it was great for you, but during your childhood, you probably 
I'm going to go on a limb, say you didn't have the faculties to be the best judge of art, to be a good critic. Mm -hmm. So if you are trying to make your bones as an authority on film criticism, then nostalgia is not just, not, it's not really overrated, it is poisonous. So please, stay away from nostalgia. And, and you know, I, you go to like people who are maybe a little bit older than us who are film fans need to be taught the same lesson about Back to the Future. I mean, that we need to know about Back to the Future. They need to be taught the same lesson about Caddyshack. Mm-hmm. And maybe, I'm going to offend you here, but maybe even Blues Brothers. Again, very good movie. Not one of the greatest movies ever made. It's got some problems. <laughs> uh, greatest uh, movie based on Saturday Night Live characters? That oh, might yeah. be true. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm... Now, I'm, I, I like Wayne's World a lot. You know what? Stuart Saves His Family. Pretty solid I never saw movie. That one. Pretty good. Oh. It's got uh, your Vincent D'Onofrio, your Harris Eulen. It's got, a, it's got a good cast and it's a good story. Isn't he really everybody's Vincent D'Onofrio? Not mine. No. So, I, so, won't cl- I won't claim him. Okay. Uh, all right. But, but I, I want to I, I get your guys' opinion. Your guys' is, is, uh, maybe. <laughs> if I'm trying to like set myself out here as uh, an authority, maybe I shouldn't set myself up for ridicule as well by saying your guys'. Is. But I, I would like your uh, opinions on nostalgia in, in terms of being able to consider yourself a voice uh, or any sort of authority. Or just consider yourself knowledgeable about film. Uh, Dave, do you want to go? Do you want to jump in first? Well, I know uh, I have an opinion. First of all, I guess I'll preface this by saying that I am actually—I actually am a couple of years older than the both of you. I don't mm-hmm. know if you're aware of that, uh, and I'm not a huge fan of Caddyshack by any standard. <laughs> okay. um, I would say that if I was going to give an example of a film that I loved as a young person, that maybe. I still hold on to a favorable opinion of it that it probably doesn't deserve. The, the closest thing I can think of is Clue. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I still love Clue. I could watch Clue once a month, uh, even though I've had a number of people say it's a flawed film, and it, but, See, but and, I still love it. And this is what I'm talking about. When I was young, I did watch Clue almost once a month, but now I can't... I, I don't know what this makes me. Maybe I'm too joyless or too much of a snob, but I've seen Clue. I know now that I was wrong when I was a kid. It's not very good, and now I don't want to watch it. Well, anymore. it's the difference between liking a movie and thinking it's a great movie. And like you guys were doing your thing about directors. You made it a point of saying, look, don't tell us your favorite directors. Mm-hmm. Tell us who you think the best directors are. I don't think that came through totally, uh, okay. by the way, so but that's Clue all right. So one of my favorite <laughs> movies, but I don't think it's a great film. Likewise, I've made a tradition on May the 4th, I watch Annie Hall. Uh-huh. I this past year I watched Annie Hall and The Goodbye Girl, both I, films I, that are better than Star Wars. I like that. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting uh, thing because I'm glad you brought up Clue because that's a that's a perfect example. Um, I watched that when I was a kid. I own it now. Um, admittedly, it was five bucks at Target, so it's like okay, I'm doing this. Um, if it had been seven, I probably wouldn't have. <laughs> Somehow, five dollars just makes it all worthwhile. Um, for the same reason I almost bought Bram, Bram Stoker's Dracula, then I was like, I- I'm not going to watch this. I will, I will fast forward to the Tom Waits scenes, and then I'll be done. Um, but uh, he's very good as Renfield. So, but, having, but re-watching Clue, there are, there are plenty of funny moments, uh, and, there, and it's very high energy. I like that uh, in a comedy, especially in one like that. Um, there are certain performances that are wonderful. I'm a huge fan of uh, Madeline Kahn. I think she's great in that. I think a lot of people are good in that. But 
when I, you know, looking back, I realized, like, there's a lot of almost, like, juvenile jokes. That doesn't mean I don't, ha- I don't have to, uh, it doesn't mean I have to hate it. It just means I have to give it a place. And I think, I think the, the, the difference, so I like the movie. Mm-hmm. I don't, I certainly would not say, it's a fine I wouldn't say that I, it's fine entertainment. I wouldn't say that I love it. And I wouldn't say that it's great. And I think a lot of people our age would say that because it's something they grew up with. And I think here's the difference. And I think here's what you're talking about, David, is Matt Singer. Now, Back to the Future is somewhat of an, of an, an, an iconic film. And when you think of the 80s, if you, if you said 10 movies from the 80s, Back to the Future would probably be in there. Someone would probably say that. Of any number of, you know, probably age 50 or, or younger, they'd probably say Back to the Future because not only was it a big movie, but it was also a quintessential 80s movie mm-hmm. from, mm-hmm. you know, who's president? Ronald Reagan and then Huey Lewis and, like, <laughs> all, the, all, that, all, all that kind of thing. The irony being that so much of the appeal of Back to the Future was based on nostalgia for the 50s. Mm-hmm. That's true. I didn't even think of that. I haven't seen it in a while. I'm not, oddly enough, sorry, everybody, I'm not a huge fan of Back to the Future. I like it. I don't love it. Um, yeah, it's a good, that will make, it makes me I uncomfortable. Get, the whole, uh, the, incest, the incest thing uh, <laughs> gets me. Um, but that's neither here nor there. So, but to assume, as uh, Matt Singer did, and I'm sorry, I, I did not listen to this. This is all based solely on what David has said. Matt Singer, I don't want to insult you. Please come on the show I, if you want to. I hope I didn't insult Matt Singer either. I'm a big fan. I know, but you're naming names. You're going back to the nuts I'm, there, I'm, David? I'm not giving up on these fucking nuts. Um, <laughs> but, uh, these, these nuts. <laughs> no. No. Not at all. That's not, for not at all the, bad. That is for a friend of the show, Jason Aiken, uh, and only for him. Um, it wasn't even for me. No, I, I hope I didn't say anything to insult Matt Singer either. Uh, okay. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of when he, uh, you know, I, like I said, I've seen his podcast as Daily Departed, and when he and Allison Wilmore fill in for film spotting, it is uh, uh, cause for celebration. And, you know, it could be... Which is <laughs> not meant to be an ins- insult to Adam and, and uh, Maddie or whoever. I, I have not caught up yet. Man, what are you doing to, to these I'm people? backpedaling now. <laughs> so, um, and... And it makes me wish that I had gone and, and listened to that uh, that episode be- and, and listened to his comment specifically. It was a tossed off comment. Okay, that's why I'm saying like. But the question is: the question is, did he say it with surprise or disgust? Surprise means, gi- given this audience, the pot the, the the podcast audience for shows like ours, like Film Spotting, like Slash Film, is usually ages I'm going to say 18 to 30, and within that age group. Back to the Future, even for 18-year-olds, is I think they're aware of it and they know it. So maybe he was surprised that, given the audience, more people didn't weigh no, in. No, I think what, what, what or was he more disgusted that like this should have been bigger? Yeah, I think what he specifically said was um, that the lack of entries, he said, if that means that people haven't seen Back to the Future, then I don't want to know these people or like I'm shocked and appalled. or I don't know. It was something about... like. He couldn't wrap his head around the idea that that um, this many people have, may possibly hadn't seen Back to the Future. Which, by the way, he was uh, he was joking when he said it. Okay. But the joke came from. I mean, he was he was exaggerating when he said it. I should say. Right. But it was still the the kernel of truth. It came the from exaggeration a real, that that, that got me it, thinking about this. It probably came from a real place. I could see that. Um, and that's the thing is so to I think I think where the nostalgia factor can become. 
this might be too big of a term, damaging when you're talking about film, is when you... Poisonous was the word I Poisonous, there you go. Okay, yours is actually worse. Um, (laughs) Is when you expect others to to take part in your nostalgia and not merely take part but have the same appreciation for it as you do, even if they have not had the same experiences, they're not the same age, they didn't live during the same time. And so to be like, how is that not this? And it... It reminds me of something. I was recently watching a sketch uh, from Saturday Night Live from the spring, and it was like a, a, a debate from like the the non-announced or unannounced uh, Republican candidates. And um, Daryl Hammond is in there as Donald Trump, and he ha- and his Donald Pr- Trump is delightful. But he has this bit where he's like, he goes, "I just saw this movie called Citizen Kane. It's about this guy who's awesome and makes a." T- ton of money i didn't see the end of it but i assume he winds up happy and president so <laughs> that's funny to me it's funny to all of us including the listeners because the humor there is a guy who stops watching citizen kane halfway through when everything's going very well for the man the the joke doesn't totally you know bear out because uh it's like well we see from the beginning that he's not very happy he's kind of low that's neither here nor there so the, just from a linear standpoint Stopping halfway through is funny because everything hasn't gone to shit for Charles Foster Kane yet. And so, but the guy to just take that and run with it and assume everything works out for the best, that's funny to us. That joke did not get a big laugh from the audience. It only, it really only got a couple of chuckles. And to me, that was one of the funniest things in the sketch. And I think it spoke volumes about the character of Donald Trump that they had created. Mm-hmm. And at first, I'm like, oh, these bastards. Like, they haven't, they don't know Citizen Kane. Otherwise, it would have gotten not a crazy, riotous but, laughter, but would have gotten more than a couple of chuckles on, here and right, there. I want to see where you're going with this. And you're so, not nostalgic for Citizen Kane. I'm not nostalgic for, for Citizen Kane, but it's, it's this idea of extending what, what I'm in. And we've talked about it before in a, in a larger sense. I've seen Citizen Kane because of what I love and who I am and the experience and the experiences that I've had. Now I didn't grow up with it, but it's a part of who I am. And so I expect so and so I love that joke. Mm-hmm. But I expect everybody else to have had the exact same experience I have. And but, to, I mean, for all you know, they've all seen Citizen Kane. They just didn't think the joke was funny. That's I mean, possible. People are going to laugh. We're going to laugh at that's subjective. But uh, I think. Tyler, if I might be so bold, I think... You mean like these almonds here? Yes. <laughs> if I may almond things up over here... Oh, man. I think what salty. you're getting it is you're, you're operating on the assumption that most of the people just aren't familiar with Citizen Kane and don't know that that's not how it ends, and that's why the joke didn't land. Right. Yeah. I, that, that is what I, that is what I me, think. To me, contextually based on the joke as you described it to me, I think even if I'd never seen or heard of Citizen Kane, I would get what the joke was. Probably, but because you don't know... I think you just found it funnier than other people because... Because I'm because familiar with it. To, no, it, has nothing to do, to it has nothing to do with it being my favorite film or a movie that I've seen several times. But I think when you see the extent of how miserable Charles Foster Kane is in the film, I think at that point you... I'm not again. I'm not saying you're just oh, just doubled over with laughter. But it gets more than a than like three chuckles from the audience. You know, it's I, I think, it's not the best I, I written. I think you need to make room for the possibility that maybe maybe people just didn't think the joke was funny. 
That's that's fine. Those people are wrong. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I agree. I saw that sketch, and it is a good joke, construction-wise. Yeah. And it works on multiple levels, both in terms of the Citizen Kane reference and what it says about Donald Trump's character. Absolutely. That he would stop watching the movie and just make that assumption. Yeah. And that, then associate that, himself with right, Kane no, and laughing. expect it to be that's a good fun. thing. Yeah. It is, it is, it, that's very funny. But See, I d- David, once you understand the joke, then it's funny. Right. right. See... Because nothing helps. A You're not going to be struggling than having it explained, right? You're not going to be we'll struggling for long <laughs> with uh, with this attitude. Um, so, the reason that I that I make the the comparison because I'm saying like my attitude was why can't people be more like me? Mm-hmm. And I almost feel like whether this be Matt Singer or anybody, you'll find that adi- this attitude with nostalgia with almost anybody, which is why can't people be more like me why can't they love this movie the way i do as i grew up with it and by the way cannot possibly divorce it from my childhood and and how i was raised i i think you can i think you can i think you can i don't think you can for yourself i think no matter how no matter how much you grow clue could be a truly terrible movie for all i know i can still watch it and enjoy it at least on the nostalgia level. If I had See, never I seen it until I was an I don't adult, have that. well, you're less human than Apparently, I am. Apparently, I, I watched Willow when I was a kid at least as often as you watched Clue, Dave. And then when I saw Willow again as uh, not even a real grown up, like a college kid, uh, I um, uh, <laughs> I realized I recognized that it was really stupid. And now I don't watch it anymore. Mm. You know, uh, another movie that's uh, frankly a little better than Willow, uh, but gets this kind of reverence from people our age is is the goonies it's mm. it's mm. it's not a movie that really holds up and i, I think that's gotta i think it's gotta be okay with you i think th- oh it's, it's gotta be okay that it's perfectly okay i i loved willow when i was a kid and there are plenty of movies like who framed roger rabbit and dick tracy which i think i talked about recently uh on the show that i like more now that i'm older um there are stuff that I did not understand as a kid or didn't sure, fully yeah. appreciate. So I think uh, it can go James that way as Khan well. is the other mobster. That's why it's cool. Yeah, it's just like, who's that guy? Yeah. Oh, his car just exploded. That's pretty awesome. Like, that was basically the extent of my, my appreciations. Like, I didn't know who Dustin Hoffman was or why it was inherently funny that the guy who played Rain Man is playing this character. And just, uh, but, um, but I think, it, I think for me, it's, I can, I think I can, separate myself from the nostalgia enough to be like okay that movie's not very good i enjoyed it i might still enjoy it on a certain level um but i don't think i can separate it completely i still you know what maybe i'll put it this way i there's still a fond place in my heart for it whatever that may be it might be past or present probably not future but uh you know and i think maybe that's you know here's the thing you may distance yourself from Willow, and you may condemn yourself as a child, which, by the way, is a little disturbing. Um, I'm condemning myself as a child? I you, was a child. I know, but you said, like, I was wrong as a child. I was yeah. stupid. I did say I was stupid. <laughs> Maybe I inferred that. Um, I've known you for years. You were pretty dumb. So, uh, so I th- but I think, like, you know, you can... But I think so. Willow is not good. I think we we all agree on that, right? I haven't seen it. I don't think since it originally came out. Okay, so. um, we should all watch Willow. Um, <laughs> but I think I think if if pressed, I feel like you would probably say like there. It still gave me joy as a kid. That doesn't mean it's yeah. good. But there's still something in my heart that I'm sorry to use such 
flowery language is that but there's still something inside me that has affection for it that doesn't make it good and it doesn't even make it recommendable and i don't have to watch it to be able to access that that's affection. Tr- that's true so i don't have to keep buying new blu-ray editions of back to the future or, or whatever the fuck because i already have the memories you, and know? you don't have to keep insisting that it's good and that other people yeah should and, like by, it. and by the way i should say i mean back to the future the first one is like i said a, a, it's, it's a very good, good movie. Yeah, it's yeah. a very good movie uh, i don't really like either of the sequels um mm. anymore although i will say Back to the Future 3 is somewhat to the point what you were talking about. Excuse me. Something that I like more now than I did when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Because I've seen more westerns yeah. since and I kind of get it more. Yeah. Uh, man, I've got two tacks I want to go with this because I like that we're disagreeing. Mm. Okay. And I, I don't think we never disagree. I don't think we're totally disagreeing, by the way. But I was going to bring up something that was also Zemeckis related. Because we, we almost never disagree on the show, Tyler, you and I. Dave, you uh, know that. Oh, yeah. I'm bringing Dave in. Yeah, I, I'm glad. <laughs> The other night, uh, and we'll get to that, uh, we were on the phone, and we had a, d- a disagreement. I mean, we disagreed about a movie. And I, w- I remember thinking at the time, like, if it weren't 1 o'clock in the morning, I would want to have this con- conversation. No, I don't, I don't even remember that. And I th- basically, we're doing our top, one, our top 100 directors list. It's listener-generated, uh, but there have been some tiebreakers that we've had to discuss. Right, yes, own. yes. And I uh, wanted to put, you'll, you'll wait, for, you know, the... Uh, uh, the tension, I'm sure, is very strong. You have to wait to see who won this discussion. I wanted to put Alfonso Cuaron above Robert Zemeckis, mm-hmm. and you wanted to put Robert Zemeckis above Alfonso Cuaron. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not a discussion we've ever had here. Because uh, you said two things I disagree with. Okay. That Robert Zemeckis is uh, better than Alfonso Cuaron, and you also said that Forrest Gump is Robert Zemeckis' best movie, which I, which I also don't think is true. Did I say that? or yeah. did, I, did I say it was his best movie? Because I think... I asked you directly, what do you think is Robert Zemeckis' best movie, and is it better than Alfonso Cuaron's best movie, and you said Forrest Gump is his best movie. Because I think, I think Castaway is his best movie, but I know I'm in the minority on that. I don't even know why I said that, because Camus Who, who Framed Roger Rabbit is great. That's a wonderful film. Dave, favorite, uh, favorite Robert Zemeckis movie, and is Robert Zemeckis better or worse than Alfonso Cuaron? Well, okay, here's the thing. Um... As I said earlier, there's no reason why your listeners should be at all familiar with me. So I'm a little concerned about how I come across. I'm afraid I've already presented myself as being both pedantic and insulting, and I don't want to give that impression. You did say a word like pedantic. That's a step in the right direction. Okay. And as, as establishing that I am? That, that you're part of, that you belong here. Okay. Yeah, Fair you're enough. no more pedantic or insulting than uh, the hosts. I am, I am very fond of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I will admit that at least part of that is born out of a prurient interest. Uh, Roger Rabbit turns me on. <laughs> Specifically, Jessica Rabbit. Oh, okay, all right. Okay. Yeah, the movie Roger Rabbit, the character yeah, Jessica yes. Rabbit. Yeah, I've you know I've I've long had a fascination with animated redheads. Uh, Ariel, Ariel, not so much. I, I was going to really? say Daphne. Oh, yeah. Oh, got it. Okay, took me a moment. Yeah, I was still in the uh, movie. Uh, Is it the right. half fish part that really? Throws you on Ariel. I just always thought Ariel she's, was kind of a simp, but that's, she's not half fish the whole time. Yeah, I guess she, she had messed up priorities. Who doesn't? Yeah, but Wait, uh, she wanted to be where the people are. Wanted to see. Wanted to see him dancing. <laughs> what, what more? Yes, pri- she what did. But that? didn't she realize that she was under the sea? <laughs> it's, I, it's better down where it's wetter. wetter. <laughs> Take it from me. <laughs> that poor unfortunate. <laughs> Uh, right, the, the other girl. thing I wanted to talk about then, we're, we're past the... Oh, wait, did you, you didn't answer whether Zemeckis is better than Quaron or not. 
Well, again, uh, I'm not going to represent myself admirably here. He was the director of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban? Yes, and also Itamao Itamao Tamiyan, okay. And Children of Men. Okay, of Of those three, I've only seen one, and that was the Harry Potter. And I Uh, quite liked it. I think it's probably, I thought it was the best of the Harry Potter films. I agree. But I would not say that I'm familiar enough with the gentleman's work to make any kind of an evaluation. I would say that Robert Zemeckis has probably made a larger contribution to the culture as a whole. To the culture as a whole. Which, what about? Which is why I, I do think that as, I, from straight directing, I think Quaron is better. But I, on the list, I put I would put Zemeckis higher because of cultural. Well, let me ask you this. All right, Zemeckis, because I'll agree, pop culture as a whole mm-hmm. has definitely had more. Uh, Zemeckis had more of an, of an impact. But if you're creating a masterclass of directors, and the point is to teach someone more about about film. And filmmaking, mm-hmm. I think in that case you had to put Alfonso Cuarón uh, above it. Cause Probably, yeah. I think I think Zemeckis does. Um, I'm trying to think what the word is. He does the expected thing very, very well. Mm-hmm. He's very populist. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think that's a bad. And thing. he's very accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's also one of the best uh, with 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 visual effects. See Castaway and um, Forrest Gump, both of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, Roger Rabbit, but Alfonso Cuarón. I think Beowulf, uh, I think Itamao Tembien is Alfonso Cuarón's best movie, and I do think it's better than Forrest Gump and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Put I, together, I don't know about that. <laughs> I, don't I, don't know. Know, I don't know how you judge that. I don't remember how many animated characters were in Itamao Tembien, but if it's less than two, <laughs> I'm out. Um, man, if that movie was animated. Uh, the other thing uh, on this this nostalgia thing is t- uh, taken. Uh, it could have been a whole topic, maybe some someday. But uh, I think this this ta- throwaway joke that Matt Singer made on film spotting was the straw that broke the camel's back because it's kind of been building in me mm-hmm. for months since Super Eight came out. Okay, and here's here's why I loved Super Eight. I know that I'm in the, in the minority on that. At least, are you in the at least a, at least among these people that I'm talking about, the people okay. who our peer group, our internet film blogger, podcaster, critic peer group. I'm not a big fan of it. I am in the minority of Super 8. And, and I feel like there are two distinct camps of the people who disagree with me. There are the people who disagree with me from the sort of uh, uh, the, the the plot, I guess, or or the, the fact that the monster doesn't kind of pan out to be what it's built up to be, mm-hmm. and the third act is kind of weak, and I totally think those people are, are, are right. They that- just... Look, That's me. Yeah, they they just look for different things than I do in a movie, mm-hmm. and then I feel like there's this other camp of people, um, and I don't think I'm building a straw man, but I do think that these people wouldn't, wouldn't cop to necessarily this being it. But they're just saying, Super Eight wasn't the experience for me that the Goonies or whatever was or when I was when I was ten. Mm-hmm. Or ET, yeah, I heard a lot of people compared to ET and. and and the thing is, well, yeah, because you're an adult now. Like, right. you're not going to have that experience no matter what the movie. I think, I think uh, and, Mike and, and so Schmidt... That's, that's, that, sorry, that's, that's the <clears throat> kernel of why this nostalgia thing started getting to me, is this, this certain small camp of, of Super 8 decriers who, mm-hmm. were, who were against it for reasons that I think are uh, childish. And I do think it's... Like, if you were to compare it to E.T., it will come up short. E.T. is a much better film... So, objectively, I think E.T. is much better, and so it's unfortunate that you're comparing it to that because the two happen to be, you know, similar, I think, structurally. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But also, as as a friend of the show Mike Schmidt said, uh, I think a long maybe maybe back when like the the second Transformers film came out, he said these movies can't compare. You're not comparing them merely to the film you watched as a child. You're wa- you're comparing it to your childhood because any movie you watched as a kid shaped who you are. So right. you're judging it against that whole thing, not merely the movie that you watched. And so I feel like it's it's always going to come up short. So if there's anybody to, who doesn't like it for that reason, I'm not necessarily going to say that they're wholly wrong. No, but it's, at it's the a, same but it's time, a very it's, personal reason to dislike it, yeah. not exactly a critical one. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I do think this is a, an interesting um, an interesting discussion to have because you know you and I have also talked about the idea of embracing subjectivity in film criticism to a certain extent which is like what do i like you know what do i as a married christian man who's experienced grief who's lived a lot of places what do i bring to a film it's a part of your voice right as a critic and, and then what do you as i won't uh, label you by with all these things but you know what you know what you I are know exactly what i am <laughs> so, yeah. um, but your point tyler is that you you are able to recognize what it is about you having had that experience and just because you react to a certain movie that way, it doesn't make it necessarily a bad movie. It, just because you don't like, right? It. Yeah, I think you make a good point. Dave. You have to be. It's it's okay to bring a certain amount of subjectivity, but also you need to be able to recognize when you're being subjective. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, okay. And I realize that's the second time so far tonight that I have tried to put words into your mouth and say this is what I think your point right, is. You're doing so a great I, job. Oh, that's okay. all right. You're doing a better job than I am. Right. <laughs> I would so, like if I could. Okay. Uh, again. Um, I, I don't want your listeners to think that I'm soulless, so I will juxtapose my experience with Clue with another m- movie that I have very fond memories of from my childhood that I like even better now that I'm an adult, and it is my favorite movie, and I will defend it till my last breath, which is the Muppet movie. Huh. Interesting. I don't know. I encourage anybody, you know, I'll tell people that, and they say, oh, I haven't watched that since I was a kid. Watch it as an adult. Oh, yeah. It is yeah. immensely funny and yeah. touching and wonderfully made. And uh, I, even if I'm saying that through a filter of nostalgia, I don't care. I've loved this movie my whole T- life, Tyler, and I will continue. The, to the, the Muppet movie, funnier than the Blues Brothers movie. What do you think? Mm, I think it might be. No, no. What do you think, Dave? Do you think it's funnier? The Muppet movie has more gags. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's what I. That's what I respond to. It, it's I, I laugh at Blues Brothers quite a bit. I've seen it fairly recently, and a lot of those jokes hold up. And I like them actually even more. That's what I was going to say. There's another movie that actually... Yeah, I, I don't want to sound like I'm ragging on the Why Blues Why do you hate Brothers. the Blues Brothers? It's a great movie. And yeah. there's another movie that I think the older you get, the more like you can recognize the, the weirdness. And they're uh, both movies that take very good advantage of the fact that they're movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a, there are in, things in them that are metatextual before meta was a thing. Yeah. And I tell you, in the spirit of uh, being able to appreciate things based on how much you are aware of uh, Orson Welles... Um, I saw the Muppet movie as I got. I saw it when I was a kid, and then I saw it as I got older, and uh, and I liked it much more as I got older because there's so many things that are clear. No, no kid knows about the career trajectory of Orson Welles and why it is inherently funny to have him be the head of a studio. I thought it was hilarious, and it's just, and I wouldn't get that at all as a kid, you know. And uh, so we just found out what your like sort of soft spot is: Orson Welles-based humor. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> The Critic, best show on TV. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite guest, Maurice LaMarche. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
there's got to be one comic out there who can make a lines. killing. It's meaningless. Get me a jury. <laughs> you can find some. <laughs> what, I don't remember exactly the phrase, but he says, if you can find 12 people to say that you should hit in and in July, I'll go down on you. Yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> Orson Welles saying that is maybe the best thing in life. Mm-hmm. I think it's up there, top ten anyway. All right, you no, say sabotage. We're thirty-five. I say sabotage. <laughs> we're thirty-five minutes into the, into the fucking episode here. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, that's quite all right. We want to get to know Dave a little bit. Indeed. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> now you you meant it, you meant, meant it, mentioned. Uh, it's these. It's, it's these, these almonds. damn almonds. <laughs> uh, the, the salt and vinegar has burned off the feeling in the inside of my mouth, so it's all just a mess in there. I'm trying to form words. And I, and I, can't I tell feel what like I'm doing. this is your fault. It's like walking they down the hallway with my eyes closed. They, they clearly label it bold, David. All right, it's there in all caps. In, I think in that's what, what made only, me want to challenge myself. It can only be described as a military font. I feel like that should throw you. That should yeah. let you know. No, but I think that's what that's. I felt. Right. I felt my masculinity threatened. Okay, fair enough. And I decided I'm going to eat all these tonight. Um, now, Dave, you mentioned before we uh, started rolling that you are also uh, from the Midwest. Yes, as am I, and uh, a place. It's a Midwest is a place where Tyler lived at mm-hmm. one point, at like three points. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, where are you from? Well, how did you come to be out here? How did you get into community theater? How did you get into stand up comedy? And how did you get into uh, customizing action figures? Which is what well, I really want to know about. <laughs> well, some of, some of those things are less relevant to the movie podcast. Uh, I would refer you to the episode of the Dork Forest that both Tyler and I were on. Uh, where we met, uh-huh. I talk at great length about my action figure hobby there. Uh, I'll happily touch it. I'm originally from a town just outside Cleveland, Ohio. Mm-hmm. It's called Painesville. Ugh, that's not a that's joke. Unfortunate. Yeah. Well, it's got an E in it, so it's oh, a little right. better. Uh, let's see. I was I was in my first children's theater production when I was six because I was always I was always kind of a show offy kid. What I had, was it? It was a musical version uh-huh. of the Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Right, and I played Dorian, one of Ichabod Crane's uh, students. Mm-hmm. All right, was it upbeat? That is not an upbeat story. Uh, it it was. Okay. It, it had its comedic moments. I led the school kids in a, a big production number a number of an original song called "Why Won't They Let Me Be a Dummy," where we were all bemoaning the fact that we had to go to school when we'd all just much rather be stupid. I Sounds like, like it. propaganda. Is there to a me. recording of this? Uh, where uh, where I do I find believe that I have a VHS tape. I want to. Uh, I want to hear that see song. See if I can't track it down. Why won't they let me? That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, that was uh, one of the appealing things about this particular children's theater company was they pretty much did all original works. Mm-hmm. So there was a musical version of A Christmas Carol. There, my second play was a musical version of The Emperor's New Clothes. Hmm. Uh, I played a member of the traveling circus, which the con men were a part of. That one, it, it was less... Less artistically valid. But anyway, mm-hmm. so, you know, I'd been interested in performing from a young age. Uh, I was always kind of a show-offy, smart-alecky, attention-grabbing kind of a kid. So my folks channeled that into the theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got older. I did theater in high school and college. Uh, after college, I stayed in Ohio for a while and got involved with the improv- improvisation scene in Cleveland. I studied at the Second City Training Center there when there was one. I spent two years with uh, an improv company there called Something Dada. They're still running. They're about to celebrate their anniversary, actually, the weekend after we're recording this, October 8th. Uh, What's the anniversary? I'm embarrassed to admit I don't know okay. this. Uh, it's in the teens. Okay. okay. Let's see. I th- so, actually... 
No, they opened the year I turned 17. So I want to say this is their 16th, 16th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I was 17. I'm now 33, 16th. Yeah. I studied English, so max math is not my strong Fair point. enough. Uh, so then after doing that for a while, I moved to Oakland just because there was only so much you can do in Ohio. I was in Oakland for about four years, and then I moved to Los Angeles, uh, started going to open mics, stand-up open mics, just because I wanted to try something different from improv. I still have a great fondness for improv and sketch, mm-hmm. uh, and it was through a stand-up comedian friend of mine from the Bay Area that I met Jackie Cation and therefore Tyler, and through Tyler U, and I've you know started becoming more active in the local stand-up scene uh it was after meeting jackie and tyler and hearing both of your wonderful podcasts that i decided i wanted to try one myself uh especially where people would come on and talk about their experiences in live theater usually non-professional but i i've had some leeway there mm-hmm. just, just if someone's got an interesting story i'm not gonna care if they were getting Do you get paid. paid for that yeah. get the hell out of my house yeah. <laughs> i had so much fun being on the benny south street podcast uh and i i started it thinking like Am I qualified for this? Am I going to be able to talk about? And then by the end, you were like ready to wrap up, and I was like, No, no, no! I've got more stories. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He had to stretch mine into a second episode, but not for theater stories. <laughs> yeah, we had because, a special topic. Yeah, because uh, as uh, I think, I think uh, my episode is still available. Correct? Uh, like yes. you can still okay. Um, yeah, on uh, when we were on Jackie's show, The Dork Forest, uh, there is just the, a little. Dave threw out a little something, and I was like, Oh, I need to revisit that. Uh, because it would appear that he and I are really the only two people in the world that aren't head over heels in love with uh, Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker. I enjoy, I actually enjoy it more than you do. Yeah, I but, actually uh, I don't like the movie generally. I, I I'm not a fan of The Dark Knight. Man, oh man, Doug Benson would hate you. But well, uh, it hasn't been an issue so far. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Ironically, he's somebody I'd really like to have on my podcast because he's got an extensive background in live theater, especially mm-hmm. musical theater. I actually didn't know that. That's yeah. interesting. Um, I had Matt Belknap on, and he was in a similar situation to you, David, where he had a lot more to talk about than he thought he would. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I asked him, hey, could you put me in touch with Doug Benson? And that has not materialized. But I don't hold that against Matt. They're <laughs> right. both very no, busy. Yeah. Matt's yeah. a great guy. And as I mentioned again, I'm not significant. So, <laughs> You know what, though? Here's the thing. Uh, you, did me- you did mention uh, off-air that you haven't done an episode in a while. You're busy doing other things. Uh, but it's a... G- I'm a big fan of anybody who does a podcast that's even slightly different. Um, you know, like there's a lot of comedy podcasts out there, which is why I'm excited like about Mike Siegel's travel podcast and Paul Gilmartin's, you know, uh, mental illness, mental happy, illness hour. happy hour podcast. Um, and why I like yours, because there's not a lot of podcasts out there about, about theater specifically because my, my theory on this is that you listen to a movie podcast, any movie we talk about, you can go find and you can watch. Um, with a couple of exceptions, to go back to Orson Welles, Chimes at Midnight is not available on DVD in this country. Mm-hmm. And that's, that is a shame because it's a wonderful but I'm, film. I'm pretty sure Back to the Future is on DVD and Blu-ray. And Blu-ray? I'm pretty sure. Man, that's got to look beautiful. <laughs> and pretty soon you'll be able to buy the shoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does those, do those boards really hover? It looks so real. So... Um, so the uh, uh, so with a movie podcast, everything we say you can you can check out for yourself. But with theater, it really is just people telling stories, and that's all. Like you can't go back and watch. I mean, it sounds like we could watch that uh, 
Legend of Sleepy Hollow thing, you should post that online somewhere um, so that I can. I'm joking, of course. Yes, you, don't you have should. To. No, I'm not joking. Okay, all right. I'm uh, sorry, if, David. Uh, David's, you know, what he says is, is are the rules around here. It, listen, it might be the Elmans talking. <laughs> There's a certain irony in this. I actually currently do not have a VCR because I lent it to a young lady for the very same reason that you're talking about now. She wanted to capture video of her own high school theater productions uh-huh. and didn't have a VCR, so I loaned her mine and I haven't gotten it back yet. So I would not be able to do that until I get my VCR back from her. I got some good news for you, my friend. If you look over there, you'll see a VCR DVD combo. Is this just going to become a round-robin VCR lending chain? I'm not lending it to you. You lend me something, and I'll I'll burn it to a DVD. You're not getting that thing. That was a Christmas present. Okay, fair enough. Um, But, but yeah, uh, so I do want to go back uh, a little bit because... It's interesting to me that you wanted to try stand-up after improv. They are two very and and after you know theater in general, they are two they're very different animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said you still enjoy improv, but you are focusing a lot on stand-up. Um, how because you, it's not a, it's not an unheard of thing that people do this, but it's still a pretty recent development for you, relatively speaking. And so yes, um, so I'm interested like. What aside from just the let's give this a shot? Was there anything else that contributed to you wanting to do that? Were you a big stand-up fan, or yes, I, I have been a stand-up fan for quite some time, and this will actually segue quite nicely into the topic okay. that we prepared. And uh, we should put quotes around topic. We've had about three of them yes, so that's far. True. And we're well, when you forty-five minutes. When you first, you know, said that you'd be willing to have me as a guest, you asked me, you know, what do you want to talk about? Right. You put forth an idea. I put forward a couple others, and this is what we settled on. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get to it. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would absolutely call myself a comedy nerd. Okay. Um, I don't know if the two of you would place yourselves in that camp as well. Probably. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I admired stand-up comedians. Even when I wasn't doing stand-up, when I was just doing improv, I still... You know, watched a lot of comedy, listened to a lot of comedy, and I guess when I got to the point where I hadn't done any improv in a while, but I was still sort of feeling the itch to perform, stand-up is probably the easiest thing to get up and do. You don't have to assemble a group, you don't have to prepare scripts, you don't really have to rehearse. Uh, there are open mics that are pretty accessible. So it was just the easiest way to get up and get in front of an audience and again sort of get some attention mm-hmm. uh i think that i'm i i flatter myself by saying i think i had an advantage over a lot of first-time stand-up comics in as much as i was already very comfortable on stage mm. so i didn't have any jitters when i went to my first open mic it was you know any hesitation that i had would have been more based around the material that i prepared rather than my ability to be compelling to an audience mm-hmm. and have you found it to be like, what are some of the, I know there's an easy answer to this, but, uh, like, what are some of the key differences you've noticed? Like, you know, you said that is an advantage you did have. Was there anything, were there any difficulties about stand-up that you weren't expecting? And you go up and you're like, oh, wow, this is very different than improv. This is very different from theater. Because at least, th- at the very least, like you said, an advantage is that you don't you're not reliant on anybody else, but that also means you're not re- you can't depend on anybody else. It's all you. Right. Was there anything like that or uh well, I was surprised when I first started doing stand up and talking to other comics and telling them, yeah, most of my background is in improv. 
a very common reaction to that would be stand-up comedians saying, oh, improv is so much harder. And that was not my experience at all. Hmm. Because I found that in improv, the audience is on your side. You know, they want you to create something funny. And they'll give you a little more of the benefit of the doubt. Where with stand-up, the attitude from the audience, it's a little more adversarial. It's a little more, okay, make me laugh. And as a comedian, rather than coming up with something funny to say in the moment, you are presenting to them something that you sat down and thought, okay, I think this is funny, or I think you'll laugh at this. And if you say it in that context and they don't like it, they can be hostile Mm -hmm. or at least non-responsive. And of course, with some, with very, very rare exceptions, people won't heckle a play. Yeah. (laughs) They might walk out. Uh Uh-huh. But, uh, the, like, there, there's an old theater story. I, I've heard this from several people about a production of The Diary of Anne Frank that was so bad. Oh, yeah. That by the time it got to the end of the last act, people in the audience were shouting, They're in the attic! <laughs> so, I've heard that, that story, too. I don't know if that's true. It probably happened. Probably, yeah. yeah. It people, sounds like something. People are assholes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did. Ha- I, was, uh, I was doing a. This isn't a, this wasn't a heckle, but it uh, it threw me because I wasn't expecting it. Uh, I was in a play uh, that my church in Chicago was putting on of the boys next door, and there is a scene where my character has to break down and cry, and so like very abruptly, you know, the character is schizophrenic, so mood swings with no transition really, and that was actually you know a bit of a challenge, and so I just break into it, and the person in the front row who they're easily like six to seven feet away from me. They are not far away. There's like, damn. <laughs> and I was, and I'm like, and thankfully my head was buried in my arms and I was just, I, I, I didn't start laughing, but I certainly wasn't cr- like doing the crying anymore. And so I'm just like, Oh my gosh, I want to murder this person. It's like, no, but you got through to them. I, got, I, I know I got through you to them, but down, then they got through to me. And that's you the problem. Person's inhibitions. You know? I, I guess so. Damn. Yeah. So, Spidey smacked a bitch. I guess uh, <laughs> it's inappropriate, Dave. Sorry. All right. Um, well, and uh, a- another thing that I will mention that I think helped me be prepared. That's going to sound a lot like we edited something there because it was just an abrupt stop to everything we said. And that's I all right. Into something else. Something that I think helped me be prepared when I first started going up and doing stand up, and something that has continued to be helpful to me is that I have seen a number of films, uh, movies, and documentaries about comedy. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get into it, shall we? Oh, wow. Yeah, you haven't said it until now. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. So, 50 minutes into the show. Oh, my. That's, that's we haven't even gotten to that's toys. Like, that's like <laughs> the, <laughs> the, uh, the Raising Arizona of this podcast. There you go. Uh, yeah, what our, have you done? Our, our topic here is oh, yeah. Yeah. Why don't you tell us? Yeah, well, uh, the the idea that I put forth that I felt the most qualified to talk about was movies about comedy, specifically comedy-themed documentaries, either about the art and craft in general or about specific people who do it. I I put together a little list, and I also, at the last minute, I threw on uh, biopics of comedians, Mm. so like Man on the Moon and Lenny. Lenny, But those were also, you know, Lenny Bruce and Andy Kaufman have had documentaries made about them as well, so... Uh, you know, that'd be just as easy to talk about it in that context. And there are also movies like uh, that are you know fictional, like uh, Punchline, which I haven't seen, but I know a lot of comedians don't stand by because they're like, this is not, this right. is not real. Did um, comedy clubs 
do not have, have locker, locker rooms. rooms. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that astounds me. Um, so yeah, that and then something like Funny People, which I think is uh, probably a better example of it. I think, um, but those are the only two I can think of that are purely fictional. They're not documentary. But, they're well, not let's biopic. Get into the documentaries. Yeah. Okay. Step one. What did, What did you really want to talk about? And I know uh, I haven't seen I Am Comic, which is supposed to be. It's a movie that I think probably a lot of the people who listen to this show because they're movie nerds might not have heard of. Yeah. But among comedy nerds, especially comedy movie nerds, mm-hmm. uh, it's that's a it's it, a big deal. Yeah, and I'll admit I only just saw it recently uh, because it was available on Netflix streaming. I don't know if you guys are have taken a political stand. I actually got rid of the streaming option. I'm I'm just doing them by mail now. Interesting. Yeah, uh, because I, I'm a big fan of special features. Okay, yes, fair so, enough. So, but I did enjoy. You know, a lot of these movies are ones that I watched on demand. I, I, mm-hmm. I am on the corporate teat when it comes to to Netflix. He sure is. I, okay, I, does that mean it's being paid for by someone else on your? No, behalf? I just mean that I'm like I'm on board for the whole. No matter how many how many times they jerk me around or change their name or uh, fuck me over or <laughs> raise prices. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> that's, that's up to you. <laughs> so dismissive, just like if that's how you want to well, live hey, your life. Look, I don't want to judge, but uh, it, I'm condemning you a little bit. I'm sorry. It was it was more like I'm not in a position to judge. You know, you are. It sounded pretty judgment. I'm sorry. That's not. No, that's, again, that's not. I'm how saying judge the arena for that. Judge okay. him all you want. Did, were you not listening to the first? <laughs> hour and a half of this of this show in which he was just bashing other podcasters that's certainly do all true. you want well, i hope that's not what i did that's not what i meant <laughs> well let me i will to offset that i'll plug another podcast i don't know if you guys ever listened to the road stories podcast i do no, i i listened to yeah. it uh once or twice but i didn't i fell off okay well i am comic is very similar to that mm-hmm. there's i am comic is a lot of road stories but it is also people talking about you know what got them into comedy and what they like about it and that kind of thing. The one that I had me- that I'd mentioned that I think you both have seen is the Aristocrats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's also that's a very interesting documentary because it's a documentary about what makes something funny. By the way, we uh, I know there are certain listeners who have actually told me on Twitter that they like hearing David and Tyler backstory. So. You and I saw Aristocrats in the theater opening weekend, and yep. it was the last movie that I saw in Chicago before I moved to Los Angeles. Oh, that's right. I was like, I think my, my apartment was already mostly packed. I was leaving like that weekend. Yeah. And I had set aside time to leave the apartment, leave the packing, and see uh, see one last movie with Tyler. Because I didn't know you were coming out here at that point. It was yeah. still a year and a half away. Now, we went, to, I believe we walked to the Village North, correct? Was it the it Village was right North? It was around the corner from my yeah. uh, apartment on, uh. Uh, on Pratt. Well, this is a remarkable coincidence because I also saw the Aristocrats in the theater, uh-huh. in a theater that I could walk to from my apartment. There you go. I saw it with my roommate at the time, a fellow named William. Did, and uh, did you move away right after? No, he oh. did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, coincidences. Yeah, it, it's it's remarkable. And uh, he was not the comedy buff that I am. So, mm-hmm. for example, he was not as excited by the appearance of uh, Stephen, uh, not Stephen Bishop. Stephen Banks, as I was, as Billy the Mime. Stephen Banks, oh, yeah. of course, right, right, right. was the star of the first ever sitcom on PBS, The Stephen Banks Show. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I know yes. who Billy the Mime is. Though. Okay, yeah. well, he's, Billy the Mime is Stephen Banks. And for those that haven't, uh, that haven't seen the film uh, on DVD, wonderful special features. There's, Absolutely. There's an entire movie's worth of special features, including some amazing performances by Billy the Mime. Mm-hmm. Yes. He does a bit 
I, regardless of what your stance is, he does a bit called the abortion. Wow, that's rough. It is a rough like it's, uh, and you're like, this isn't funny. This is quite harrowing, but it's but it's really great. And and for everybody that when you say mime, it's sort of a shorthand for like ah, these annoying things that we enjoy watching terrible things happen to. Um, but when you watch that, you realize like, wow, there's a lot of. There can be a lot of power to it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so I would recommend seeing that. Yeah, the, the special features on the Aristocrats DVD include, I think I like Kevin Pollock's scene, the deleted scene that he does better than the one that's actually in the movie. Yeah, in the movie it's Walken, and in the special features it's uh, Albert Brooks, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I think terrific. my favorite part of the special feature, because there's a, there's a, they asked each of them to tell their own, like, like joke joke that they had to tell. And the one that um, Larry Miller tells oh, is... Yeah phenomenal and i i'm not larry miller so i'm not going to try and tell it to you no. go and get the dvd and watch that special feature because that that joke uh destroys me there is not enough larry miller stand-up out there i'm immensely pleased that you mentioned larry miller okay because in i am comic he has an extended scene where he tells a story about the worst introduction he's ever gotten i believe he's told it on his podcast as well And I had seen him tell this story years ago. I want to say 1998, 1999, on an episode of Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. Mm -hmm. And when I, I I was not a regular viewer of that show once it left Comedy Central and went to ABC. But I happened to tune in one night, and when I saw who was on the panel, I popped in a videotape and recorded Mm. it because it was hosted by Bill Maher. It also featured Larry Miller, Kevin Pollack, David Cross, and Robert Klein. And they didn't talk about anything topical. They just talked about comedy. Mm. And so it was sort of a precursor to a lot of these films that I'm talking about. And they got onto a run where, you know, they talked about bad things that have happened to him on the road. Larry Miller told the story of his worst introduction. Kevin Pollack said, well, I think it comes down to the worst introduction I've ever gotten, which is, ladies and gentlemen, we're out of Thousand Island, and now... (laughs) (laughs) And of course, since it's Kevin Pollack, he tells it much better than I did. Uh, But, you know, David Cross and Robert Klein, they they all had stories about terrible hell gigs that they played, you know, somewhere in the country. And they're amusing, and also, as a prospective comedian, they sort of prepared you like you have to be prepared to anticipate these kind of things did, did robert klein and david cross get along like that seems like such a weird pairing in such different generations they did david cross get along with anybody <laughs> because that also seems like a weird pairing well they didn't seem to be at odds they did there was like a, a i guess not unexpectedly considering that it's david cross but there was an interestingly tense moment where they were talking about uh the predilection I'm not sure if I'm going to say this in the right order, but Jews in comedy, mm-hmm. why there are so many Jews in comedy or why comedy some, comes so naturally to, Jew, to Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And David Cross made the point that, you know, he's not Jewish. He's an atheist. But I guess ethnically, you would say that. He right. Is. Mm-hmm. And, and culturally, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Kevin Pollack was like, and yet the fact remains, Mr. Cross, <laughs> <laughs> which is my second Kevin Pollack impression of the evening. I promise I won't do any more. <laughs> Uh, so, but, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, I wouldn't say it was uh, ill-tempered uh, on any of their part. I think they all recognized what they were there talking about. It was sort of like a prototypical uh, episode of the Green Room with Paul Provenza, I don't which know I haven't know. watched. Oh. Yeah, but I know I, very similar vibe. And what I wanted to what I wanted to get at was 
I enjoyed that both as a viewer, as someone who appreciates comedy, and somebody who aspired to perform comedy myself. Now, I don't know if either of you guys have that ambition. No. no. So then, would, would then a movie like The Aristocrats only appeal to you as sort of like a peek behind the curtain? I guess that's part of what it is. I mean, I want to get back to what you were saying about how it's a movie about, about what's funny, mm-hmm. but I think this sort of appeal to a comedy nerd is the idea which the more you learn about the comedy world which and it's easy to learn a lot with all the podcasts and everything out there mm-hmm. uh, is a false idea if we can go back to i've had so many clauses in the sentence i don't know if it's still making sense but um the idea that there's um <laughs> what, what, what Tom Sharpling of the best show on WFMU often refers to as the Brickwall Brotherhood. The idea that there's some sort of fraternity mm-hmm. among comics, that they're all kind of pals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that's not <laughs> largely true, right. but uh, the idea of that is very uh, enticing, I think, to a comedy nerd who wants to sort of uh, glorify these this profession and these people and i think that's a that's a big part of the draw for aristocrats for me like the the part where uh drew carey talks about how he likes to put the little his little like finger uh like i'm trying to uh, there's you know, he does these two snaps in this yeah, little when, uh, he, when, yeah. He, when he delivers the punchline to aristocrats he does this little thing with his hands mm-hmm. um and then i apparently paul Provenza and 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 Penn Gillette, told other people that because there's other people in the movie who kind of gently make fun of drew carey for doing that like i think robin williams says like yeah. oh this is for drew and then he yeah and, and he does the same thing um th- as a comedy nerd that part of it is very appealing to me would you agree with that Tyler? uh very it's 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 appealing and i think it's i think in some cases it's true like if you watch the movie comedian with jerry seinfeld i think I think there's a, com- a camaraderie with people at your level because they're the only people that understand where you are. Or people that started at the same time and right. places you. Mm. If you listen to a lot of po- comedy podcasts, you'll hear the question, so who did you start out with? Who did yeah. you know where, where you were at? And, uh, and so, like, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Like, the people you started with, so, like, that are sort of in your generation... But at the same time, I find myself wondering, and this is this is more of a question because I don't, I really don't know, um, if your if you take off in a way that other people in your generation have not, does that exclude you from that sense of camaraderie? Like that's that's what you'll often find with uh, you know these comedy podcasts is there's no there's no bitterness or anything, but you'll find that. Like on Never Not Funny, a show that I love. We've had a lot of those people on here. Um, and I still listen to it and I recommend it uh, all the time. And it, there's a lot of really great inside stories. A, re- a recent episode that I really like um, features uh, Tom Wilson of uh, Cinematic Classic. Masterpiece. Uh, yeah. Masterpiece, Back to the Future. Um, in which he's telling stories about coming up with uh, Andrew Dice Clay and Yakov Smirnov. Mm-hmm. And so like that's interesting, but... But on Never Not Funny, when it comes to the guy, the all the comedians that are friends, not the ones that know each other, but the ones that are friends that and that hang out, they're all about. It's not merely that they're all the same generation, but they're all about the same level of visibility. Like, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think uh, if there's if there's an exception to that. Um, 
but well, I don't... in comedian Jerry Seinfeld is really tight with Colin Quinn. Yeah, which... I don't know if you would call Colin on the same level as Jerry. Probably not. Uh, certainly not. Yeah. But I. But he's also well known. Like he's. Uh, you know, there's there's like Boston comics like you know Steve Sweeney and um, now Kenny Rogerson and stuff like that who kind of stayed in Boston and didn't really move past that. They're on TV from time to time, certainly. But uh, but you hear about there's them and then there's like a Greg Fitzsimmons who does all kinds of stuff. And I don't know if, if you know, even though they started in the same city, they're the same generation, I don't know if they would ever but like if Greg there's Fitzsimmons a is younger there. than the Steve Sweeney's and the Stephen Wright's and the He's definitely Ken, younger than Stephen Wright's and stuff like that, right? I think so. Um, I don't think he. I, I saw the uh, a movie. I don't know if it's on your list, but when stand up stood out, I don't no, know if you saw I saw that. I haven't seen that, but that's specifically about that sort of uh, late seventies into the eighties uh, Boston scene at the Ding Ho. I don't know if oh. if, uh, if comedy nerds know what the, the Ding Ho is a it was a Chinese restaurant that would have comedy there, mm-hmm. and that's where a lot of these guys, um, you know, your Stephen Wrights uh, and. The other people we've named, who you said Lenny Clark, not Anthony Clark, right? I said Lenny Clark. Okay. Yeah, uh, are all all in there, um, and and Bobcat Goldthwait, who was not from Boston but came there and did did comedy there and sort of became famous from there. Like he got Letterman from Boston from the Ding Ho, which is actually kind of a point of contention among this like insular Boston comic world. And all of a sudden, Bobcat Goldthwait comes in. He's from San Francisco or whatever. And he gets to be on Letterman. It's like, it's not his turn. Yeah. Cause right. I, I think Stephen Wright was the first one of the group to do Letterman. Mm-hmm. And then when Bobcat was the next, it was like a point of contention for these other. He's comics. a carpetbagger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't, I, to, it occurred to me, like, I don't know if I answer your question, but uh, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but it, because it occurs to me that it's all speculation. Everything I'm saying is pure speculation. It's all based solely on podcasts and these documentaries. And I think in these docu- documentaries, um, you really do get an impression of camaraderie because even if even if you may not like that other person, there is this idea that like they've had they've got road stories. I've got road stories. They've been heckled. I've been heckled. They've ha- maybe have had you know gigs where they totally bomb and so have i and there is there it's it's almost this is a little lofty but it's almost like when you've like if you've been to war and you know and you meet someone else who's been to war who's also been to war but you weren't maybe even in the same war or you were but you weren't you didn't know each other there is a camaraderie there it's like oh you're the only one who knows what i'm going what i've gone through and i know it sounds weird but i have actually felt that with other podcasters like when we saw like at comic-con like dave here like dave absolutely oh, i'm sure I, you've got no i'm not in the same class as you guys i started a couple of years after i'm not nearly as prominent i don't have as uh, you know what i have you were talking about how you respect podcasts that are about certain things or whatever mm-hmm. i have just from the start a base basic level of respect for any podcast that is still doing it after a year yeah you know that's the number of podcasts that start their podcasts you know millions of podcasts maybe that none of us ever heard of because they start and they gave up i think i think i think maybe like restaurants most podcasts fail i think they expect a big audience pretty quick and we didn't start having any kind of sizable audience until eight nine ten months in yeah, probably. Yeah, at least. Um, but the the, but re- the but reason I bring the, it up, I'll oh, go ahead. Oh, uh, 
but you're yeah you're talking about the the camaraderie you feel with the podcast and i think a, yeah. a certain part of it is that like i feel a camaraderie with other podcasts who hung in there especially yeah. if they if they weren't just like i have a chip on my shoulder by people who were born rich someone whose podcast for one reason or another because they had a name attached or whatever yeah. started successful like i'm like yeah you don't know what it's like yeah well, so absolutely. you, you say would not enjoy sitting down and having a drink with jay moore what's that you you wouldn't enjoy no, that i would not have i talked about jay moore no. On this podcast? I'm, I only have him in my mind because I thought you had mentioned Anthony Clark, and I know that they were in the same class. Right. Yeah. Sort of. Here's... Okay. I'm not a big Jay Moore fan because I think that he's actually smarter than he... I think he talks down to his audience. I think he dumbs down when he does... When he performs, I think he's going for a sort of broader crowd, and that kind of bothers me because when he does things like fill in for the Jim Rome show... Uh, it's a sports talk show. I don't know if you guys are into. I'm out. I'm sorry. Um, when it's just him and it's not his material, it's just him alone. He can be really, really funny. Mm-hmm. I think he is a naturally funny guy, but uh, his act is too too clearly an act, if you will. Mm-hmm. But here's why. That's a that's a minor complaint. <clears throat> here's going why I don't back like to Jay my Moore. fondness for cartoonish redheads. I have a lot of respect for Jay Moore because he's married to Nikki Cox. Right. <laughs> um, here's where I lose respect for Jay Moore. He was on the Sklar Brothers podcast. And it was at the old Earwolf Studios, which I believe they said on that show. I'm not, like, giving away addresses. They said on the show is roughly Hollywood Boulevard in El Centro. Most people, I'm sure, listening don't know where that is. That's not important. What's important is that Jay Moore complained to the Sklar brothers that they made him drive, quote, so far east. East? <laughs> wow. Oh. And, I know, and I understand this doesn't mean anything to most people. But what that suggests about Jay Moore and the kind of, like, uh, just, like, west side cloistered, like, rich person lifestyle he must must lead. El Centro is west of Western Avenue. Like, there's so much city east of El Centro. Most of it is east east of El Centro. Yeah, but it's frightening. (laughs) It just made me, like lose respect for him as an angelino and to a certain extent as a person when he said that it really was he joking no i don't think so i don't think so he and he is an example of somebody that started a podcast and was very very highly rated very quickly Mm -hmm. yeah um i feel no camaraderie with him okay Fair enough. Don't get me wrong. If he, if ever I saw him, I'd be like, I also host a podcast. We're like brothers. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's here's something that I, I will say as a way of sort of, and I don't want to feel like it's my responsibility to drag it back to the topic that I came up with. But uh, before podcasts were so popular, films like these were really the only way to get a look behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. before I had ever listened to any podcast, I had seen The Aristocrats and I'd seen The Comedians of Comedy. Where if you want to talk about brotherhood and camaraderie among comics, that's an excellent example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, same with uh, Vince Vaughn's Wild West comedy show. I don't know if you guys saw that. I, I know of it. See. Okay. It's, it's a good comedy film. It's not a film that's full of good comedy. Right. Uh, uh, it's, and also, it's, it's troublesome that... Uh, I mean, Vince Vaughn, I think he's, uh, I think he's a good actor. He's an amazing uh, improvisatory actor, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. If that's the right word, but there's a certain, he's not a comic, right? It, that's that, that kind of turns me off a little bit. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I want to get back though to the Aristocrats, and before we move on to other films, another thing that I like about it is that um, it actually manages uh, 
okay, I know a lot of comedy nerds who are kind of down on the aristocrats because the idea that I mean the basic premise is kind of a lie. The idea that this joke has been passed around and is told at parties by comics is mm. kind of like it, it's kind of like mythologizing. It's not really quite true, but what I really like about it is that I think it's more effective than any other uh, comedy documentary at showing. Um, how much work it is to be funny and how much talent you have to have because mm-hmm. you're not because when you're seeing stand-up com stand-up comics do their thing it's something they've written it's observations it sounds conversational it sounds like something you could do yeah. right mm-hmm. but when they're given this strict rubric be funny within these confines and you see how each of them brings their own personality to it and how they make it funny in their own ways. After an hour and a half of hearing the same joke over and over again, it still manages to be funny. It's a great testament to how hard it is to be funny. And it's it's not merely a uh, the film is not merely a discussion about what what is funny and what isn't. Uh, it is that, but it's also because of what the joke is. It's also a discussion of what's appropriate and what isn't, and how that is cha- you know in the the fact that they talk to like a Carlin, a Rickles, a Chuck McCann, a Phyllis Diller. And then you know, more, you know, more recent uh, active comics. Uh, it shows Stan that hopes Todd glasses. Absolutely, yeah. Even though Todd Glass is in it for like what eight seconds, <laughs> yeah, um, which is good if you're a bull rider. <laughs> That's the only <laughs> I thing I latch on to the fact that Todd Glass is in it because I, I, as I said about a year ago when Todd, when Paul Thompson was on the podcast, Todd Glass is one of the five funniest working comedians mm-hmm. today. I could see that. So um, I'm going to be very diplomatic right now. <laughs> oh, good. That's, and yet you just weren't in saying that. So it's very clever me, of you, Amy. I'll just say I have never actually seen Todd Glass's stand-up comedy. I'm only familiar with him from when he was on comedy and everything else. In which case, I found him extremely frustrating to listen to. Uh, uh, I will now be diplomatic, and I won't say anything. <laughs> so. Well, that's uh, they weren't. This is getting off topic again, but it's something that actually uh, has come up in a weird way on my other podcast, the TV podcast, where it was also off topic. But (laughs) to a certain extent, the nature of stand-up comedy, you can watch all the specials and documentaries and stuff that you want, but I don't think that you can even really say that you've seen a certain stand-up comedian until you've seen them live. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, Todd Glass. Yeah. I remember you and I saw his Comedy Central presents, and both of us were like, "Who is this we guy?" Li- it was goofy. Uh, we yeah. both liked it. Yeah, but being in, especially a small room like I've seen him at the UCB, of course, um, a number of times, uh, the energy and the control that he has. Yeah, uh, you know, is he seems so goofy and manic, but he is like, he is fucking running the room and has such energy, and and you can feel it when he's on stage, and that's yeah. that's there. There's there's a visceral part of, uh, and it's basically it's the reason why I have that top five funniest comedians. The the Bill Burr made that list the moment I actually saw him in person. Hmm. And I think it's notable. And I don't mean to to go. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to make this all dark, but it, there's a reason that Todd Glass had a heart attack on stage uh-huh. because his energy level is uh-huh. through the roof. And one of the things that I really liked in I Am Comic was Todd Glass's segment where he talks about what kind of room you need to have to really put on an effective comedy show. That part is great. Yes. Especially, I have a lot of respect for him because of that. And, and it's something he's been talking about for a long time. And then 
I believe is it after the credits it's or is during. it at the very during the credits yeah. uh, at the end where they finally they they have a room and they're like okay Todd whatever you want to do just do it and so he arranges it and you look at it and it's like that would be it hey man that's a nice room that would be the way to see comedy right there mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah he's uh, I I enjoyed that a great deal but um, but yeah to go back to the aristocrats the re- one of the reasons that I like it maybe even more than some of these other. Um, these other documentaries, or maybe just in a different way, not necessarily more, um, is that those are about comedians learning, you know, who've learned to be funny and, and what, what it means to re-energize yourself like in, like in comedian. Um, and then the, the structure of comedy, like in I am comic and, and the, the personal impact that it can have on comedians. Whereas the aristocrats really gets into the, the guts of comedy, which can apply to anything. And it can apply to apply to stand up, to improv, to TV, to film, really anything. You can apply those principles specifically when it comes to what is and is not appropriate. And what I like is that, uh, as it looks backward and, and sees where we are now, you see that certain things are flip flopped. Like in, you know, 50, 60 years ago, certain types of racial comedy, totally acceptable. Anything sexual is out. Now it's exactly the opposite. If you say something racial, you will get gasps. You might get some laughter as well if you say it in the right tone, like a Sarah Silverman. Um, but if you say anything sexual, people will not uh, blink My turn to be diplomatic. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm giving a... I'm speaking in a broad sense about a broad. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so stuff like that is interesting... In that you can see, you see culturally how it has changed, and it also gives you such an appreciation to bring in another movie that is not a documentary but feels like one. You look at Lenny, and you see what comedy used to be and what it is, and you see how he came about as it was transitioning, and he was a big part of that transition, and it ruined his life. Mm-hmm. And that is that's astounding to me, and actually quite heartbreaking yeah um if any lenny is a film that has sort of been forgotten it's a movie that was respected at the time but not many people talk about it it's a great movie that's bob fossey right yeah dustin hoffman i was surprised to when i found out that dustin hoffman had gotten an oscar nomination for oh absolutely and i think the uh it's been a while since i've seen it but is it uh, is it karen black that's in it that plays like his girlfriend or wife or i'm sorry to say that i'm not sure i think it's her i think she was also nominated it's 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 a formula that you've seen before, certainly, uh, certainly in the last ten, fifteen years of like self-destructive artist. But in this case, you see that he's self-destructive, but it's also—I hate to use terms like this—but in the spirit of last week's episode, the system also just fucks him, mm-hmm. and he's being self-destructive in that he is standing up to them he's also doing drugs and that sort of thing but he's standing up to them all he has to do is not stand up to the, up to them and his life can go along fine but he's not going to do that and that's what makes him kind of heroic and that's this, this brings me to something that we might might cause because for more uh, disagreement around the table here um so uh, i i think we will all agree that stand-up comedy is an art form mm-hmm. well, uh, I, dave's making a face i'm just I'm, I mean, I, I'm making a face because I'm. I've always been. I've had a knee-jerk, leery reaction to anything calling itself art, simply out of trying to be self-aggrandizing or self-justifying. I absolutely okay. say it's a craft. I. But the, there are some people who have elevated expressive. it to an art. It's, it's expressive and performative. I think that's sure. 
Uh, but how, how about this? I'll say it can be. Not everybody who does it is an artist. Okay, well, that's our first disagreement. I, I, I think it is by nature an art form. Um, there's there's bad art as much as there's good art. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I think it is uh, it is an art form. Uh, but we get into sometimes with, uh, you're talking about Lenny, uh, in a more recent documentary, American, the Bill Hicks story. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, I've they, seen a couple of Bill Hicks documentaries. I'm not sure which one is which. American I, is the one that just came out three, four months ago. Oh, okay. Maybe no, a little I more. Seen that yet. I think, I I think, think with, the within the last year. Yeah. Um, uh, there, there's sometimes there's... Okay, here's what I think we might disagree about, agree about. What's more important? Is it um, being funny? Is that, does that come before the expressive part of the art form? Or is expressing yourself in the art form more important? And the thing is, I think Bill Hicks was a very good stand-up comic, but this documentary american is way too concerned about bill hicks the uh, prophet or, or, or whatever iconoclast yeah that thing then just the fact that he was apart from what the weight of whatever words he was saying he was just fucking funny you know mm-hmm. and, and then sometimes he wasn't i actually have some problems with uh, bill hicks when he got a little too smug um but you see him do stuff like there's uh I'm not sure. Even if you haven't seen American, you might have seen this these clips of him like on stage uh, when he was like 16. He started when he was like 16, mm-hmm. you know, and 16, 17 years old, just making fun of his parents, you know, because that's his world. That's what he knows. It's before, you know, he's not talking about you know religion or or advertising or all these things that he would like proselytize about later. He's just being a comedian, and at 16, 17, he's fucking funny, mm-hmm. and like. That's what I want, and that's that's in the documentary early, and I had seen that footage before, and that's what I wanted it to be was about a funny comedian who used his funniness maybe to get some points across, but it ends up being this, yeah, this icon uh, slash iconoclast thing. Well, I think the comedians that are especially successful and especially highly regarded when you take polls the most the most common responses for greatest comedian you're either going to get Pryor or carlin Mm -hmm. and those are guys who did both of those things they were Mm -hmm. very funny and both had a lot to say i think you can be very funny and not have anything to say um like a Jerry Seinfeld, for example. There you go. Yeah. Or I, I was going to say Ray Romano. I think Ray Romano is a very funny stand-up comedian, but he's certainly not earth-shattering. Right. Uh, and I think you can have a lot to say and, as a result, kind of forget to be funny. I think that's a trap that David Cross falls into. From yeah, time. especially in his later stuff. Yeah. So you, you strike a balance, and I think in today's both political and cultural climate, you're probably going to be more successful going the first way where you're not, you know, full of, when you're, when your act doesn't have so much ideas as it does funny things. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll actually bring this back to a question that I have for you and, and, and your standup specifically, Dave. But, uh, but I think, uh, I think what you're saying is, is mostly true and that these days just like, don't, it's it's not that like hey don't make waves it's not that it's just like look just be funny all right that, and i don't think there's anything wrong with somebody having that instinct and encouraging someone to like well you need to be funny that's why people will listen to you um but uh, but i do think that if you look at a lot of uh, comedians these days i think precisely maybe uh, because uh it's such a 
polarized time, I think uh, you you find comedians who have a career precisely because they're more involved, they're more um, interested in putting across a message, and they'll throw some jokes in, but the but the jokes are more informed by the message um, instead of maybe the message. Uh, coming out of the jokes um and so you'll find you know we mentioned bill maher bill maher is a guy that i think used to be funny before he became bill maher the guy who's politically inc- the the you know the constant constant martyr the guy who operates in real time oh watch <laughs> out um thank you and so uh you know you you look at him his stand-up is still pretty funny but like He's he's often much more interested in being a provocateur, and there is a there is a role for that. But I think the best way to do it is to. I do think that funny is funny, and, and you can actually get, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm a you know, I'm a Christian, and there's there's no shortage of uh, comics who make fun of Christianity, and nine times out of ten, if they something that if they say something that is legitimately funny. I'll laugh, and in doing so, I'll be like, you know what? Maybe that is that is a little silly and a little ridiculous. And even if I continue to, even if I continue to believe that, I at least need to acknowledge this. This will look ridiculous to other people, and it helps. Frankly, it helps me as a Christian go on and actually relate to people that aren't like me. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you like the humor, I hate to, you know. It helps the medicine go down, and it's not – I think if you go with message first, you'll be preaching to people like you. If you go humor first, and there's a message behind it, that's fine. I think you'll get everyone, uh, most people, and even the people that you're making fun of might be like, yeah, I guess that is a little silly. Um, that's my that's my personal opinion, and now I'm going to throw it to you um, because you're still in sort of – using words like st- – Struggling or fledgling, I I'm, think, is almost, is almost developing. Let's yeah. go with that. I You're like still, struggling because it's sure. insulting. <laughs> oh, you, I, <laughs> believe me, when, when there's the open mic that started at 8 o'clock and it gets to be about 10.15, I'm struggling. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and so, so you're, let's go with developing. You're developing as a comedian, which means you're developing your act, you're developing stage presence, and you're developing not merely your act, but also what you want to talk about. Right. You know, you hear stories about Louis C.K., and how he did an act for years that he thought, yeah, it's funny and it gets laughs, but I don't care. Mm-hmm. I don't like this act. And so that's a part of it as well. So, you know, from from your own standpoint, as you're, as you're developing these things, you know, who would you say your influences are? And also, what kind of stand-up do you want to be? Or are you, well, to put it in those terms? You know, going back to something that I said earlier, I think I had a bit of a jump in the sense that I had a lot of uh, performance experience already. So I was already Mm -hmm. comfortable on stage. And I'll flatter myself a little bit by saying that I've had a very strong sense of self since about adolescence. You Mm -hmm. know, going out of middle school and into high school and college, this is both good and bad. I would say that I haven't changed a whole lot. You know, I've I've had a pretty strong idea of who I am and what I stand for, and that has influenced my voice as a writer, as an improviser, as a comedian. Something that I think probably saved me some time developing my voice as a comic has been listening to podcasts like we're talking about and watching movies like this. And Mm -hmm. I'm glad that this came up because there's something specific, two specific examples actually, in the comedians of comedy that 
instantly and significantly influenced my development as a comic. Uh, there's a scene where Brian Posehn, and again, this talks about you know the brotherhood and the camaraderie. The Comedians of Comedy is about three, sometimes four, I'm making air quotes here, alt comics mm-hmm. going on a tour around alt venues. Have either of you seen it? Uh, yeah, I've seen. I haven't seen the original movie. I've seen the the series. Oh, okay. And, yeah. Well, you're you're up on me. I've only seen like two episodes of the TV show, okay. but it's Patton Oswalt, Brian Posehn, sometimes Maria Bamford, sometimes Zach Galifianakis, mm-hmm. and then some, and then Eugene Merman was with them for another one of their runs. But there's a time when they're on the road, and Brian Posehn is talking about when he first started out, and you know meeting other comedians around San Francisco, and he didn't even really like very many of them until he met Greg Proops, and he specifically relates an instance where he had a bit where he was talking about the death of his father. And what that meant for him growing up, because his mom had boyfriends and there were these guys coming in and out. And another one of these veteran comedians told him, look, that's a downer. You shouldn't say that. Just say your parents got divorced. And Brian's reaction to that was, yeah, but that's not true. Mm -hmm. And that the fact that I'm able to relate that story almost word for word to you guys right now tells you what an impact it had on me. Mm -hmm. Where when I'm working on a bit, I will very often stop and ask myself, okay, is there truth in this? Is this real? That's something else that they teach you in improv. One of the seminal improv instruction books is a book called Truth and Comedy. And, you know, they'll say, you know, don't go for the joke, just find the truth, and then mm-hmm. you'll, you'll be okay. Uh, so there's that. And then the other thing in Comedians of Comedy, Patton Oswalt tells a very similar story to Louis C.K.'s, where he says he was doing comedy for four years before he started telling jokes that he liked. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing that I internalize, and I, I would hope that other aspiring comedians took that away from that movie, where that's another thing I'll ask myself. Do I like this joke, or am I just saying it because I think people will laugh at it? And if it's the latter, I, I don't do it. Because one of the things that none of these movies on my list really prepared me for was something that I just talked about the other day. And this is going to sound snobby. And again, I realize this is going to be a lot of your listeners first exposure to me. And they might think I'm a jackass for saying this, but (laughs) fine. Uh, There's a lot of bad comics at open mics. I mean, it's the beauty and the curse of an open mic is, which is that anybody can get up and do it. And I tell you, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt a friend of the show, Jim Bruce. If you listen to the Paul Goebel show, I'd say every other week, Jim Bruce has a funny open mic story. Um, I see Jim quite regularly at the Westwood Brewing Company there on you Tuesdays. Go. And, uh, and, and you feel kind of bad being like, oh, but at the same time, some people aren't supposed to be comics. And chances are those people, <coughs> I mean, hopefully, it's not, this, this is where you know, I start to sound a little mean. You know, hopefully, after about a year, they'll realize, like, I don't think I'm doing good stuff here. I, think I, I, I don't think I'm cut out for this. Or they demand more of themselves. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt. You were saying bad no, standard. no. I, it's it's you're mentioning something that brings to mind a thought that I had recently, which is I, I was actually talking to someone earlier today about you know etiquette at an open mic, mm-hmm. and it's sort of an unspoken rule. You you don't boo at an open mic okay. unless somebody's unless and I've never seen this happen, but if someone who's just being vituperatively racist or anti-Semitic mm-hmm. or wildly misogynist. There's a lot of all of those things in modern comedy, but it's got kind of a veneer of irony. Mm-hmm. But if someone's being unironically, genuinely hateful, then they might get booed, but I've never seen anyone get booed in an open mic. They'll get met with a stony silence, uh, and if they've got any sort of self-awareness, they'll take the hint. But... Uh, I don't know. 
I think you guys will agree it takes a certain kind of personality to want to get up and stand in front of a room full of people and speak into a microphone and try and make them laugh. Uh, yeah, I'd say that's about A right. certain confidence. Some might even say a certain amount of self-delusion. <laughs> so if you are convinced that you're funny, no matter what kind of reaction you get, it's very going to be hard to shake that. Hmm. And I realize, again, this sounds snobby and elitist and unsupportive, but you have to wonder at, one po- at what point do you need someone to take you aside and say, look, guy, you're really not getting this. I don't know if you realize it. No one's laughing at what you're saying. Your your material's not strong. Your presence, and again, I don't want to. I don't want to speculate as to how many people who ended up being great might have gotten that advice and then quit. But. You you hear it from time to time. Actually, people saying like a friend pulled me aside and told me to stop doing a specific bit, or mm-hmm. it said this you need to drop it or work on it because as it is right now it's not good right and so i think you actually do need that a little bit of some some accountability from a trusted friend yeah and on you know one of the things that i've liked being in the local los angeles scene is you know you go to the same rooms often enough you do start seeing comics that you like you're looking forward to them oh hey that guy's here i'll i'll stick around for an hour until he goes up that kind of thing. And you know, some, you'll talk to those folks after the show. Oh, hey, what other rooms are you going in? Where can I see you? That kind of thing. And you, you, I have been lucky enough to start developing that kind of camaraderie. I have not yet gotten to the point with anybody where I would really be comfortable saying, hey, you know, this bit that you do, I don't know if you realize how hurtful that bit is. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, uh, you're not giving your jokes enough time to land. You know, just, just in... I, I do not yet have the kind of friendship with any of my other developing comics where I'm comfortable giving unsolicited advice. I guess if somebody came to me and said, hey, man, I noticed I didn't get that many laughs last night. What do you think I should do? Then I'm, I might be prepared to. But uh, If some of these if the, some of these people came to you and said, you know, that bit, not not that it's offensive, oh, yeah, but like, it's not very good, like – do you think you're at a point where you'd be like, oh, maybe they have a point where you'd just be like, screw that guy? No, I'm, I would be the latter. In fact, I think it was like, <laughs> it was like after my second open mic up in Oakland, uh, a lady came up to me at the bar and she was trying to be helpful. And she said to me, you know, hey, uh, I, I like your stuff. You're going to be really funny once you stop using so many words. <laughs> yeah and i was like yeah hey thanks you know hey you remember that time i didn't ask your opinion <laughs> but uh, uh hey. yeah. well let's bring it back to movies um sure and uh, uh you were talking about okay we were talking about comedians of comedy and you're talking about um alternative comedy mm-hmm. and uh i was talking about seeing comics live and uh, obviously that's there are certain comics you can't see Richard Pryor live anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but comedy is different from other art forms in in its uh, in in the in in temporal terms. In that things that were funny thirty years ago aren't necessarily funny now, and that doesn't mean the person who was telling that joke thirty years ago was a hack. It just means that comedy changes. Mm-hmm. But one thing, documentaries like this, like 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 Aristocrats and like when stand up stood out. Uh, are good at is um, giving you this appreciation for the craft. I know I'm repeating myself, um, but understanding why the the metatextual to use a word you used way early on uh, comedy that we all uh, all of us hip comedy nerds like today 
why that wouldn't be possible if it weren't for the foundation of you know a, a Robert Klein or or a David Brenner. You know, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think those are. I think these movies are good for that. Yeah, and you know, one of the things you were talking about, Bill Hicks earlier, and uh, my immediate reaction when I hear somebody talking about Bill Hicks is that I'm not. I'm not as reverent about him as a lot of folks are, but that's only because everything I've seen of Bill Hicks has been filtered through all of the comedians since mm-hmm. him who were influenced by him. Yeah. So we look back now at what some Bill Hicks... Some of them Hicks, good, Dr. Hope. Some yeah. of them bad, Dennis Leary. <laughs> okay. So diplomacy's gone. It's out the yeah. window. Great, because I want to yeah. talk about Leary's Joan Rivers in a minute. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so... So I look at Bill Hicks's comedy now, and I still recognize, okay, he's funny, but I don't think of him as groundbreaking like he gets so much credit for being. And it's perfectly deserved credit. But again, because so much of what the groundwork that he laid has now become kind of mainstream, uh, it's, it's interesting to look at those documentaries about him and to put them in historical context. I would say, to my mind, a documentary about Bill Hicks probably has more impact on me than a concert film of Bill Hicks just doing his act. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me throw this out there. I'm about to blow everybody's mind. (laughs) Because I'm going to bring... We've now gotten to a point where we can bring the first half of this episode into the second half of this episode. Because I think we're at a a point now where people talk about Lenny Bruce and Bill Hicks, people who are groundbreaking, and often people... Like, you and I... uh, You know, all three of us, actually, like... We weren't adults or even teenagers when Bill Hicks was was a comedian. Like we didn't see him push the boundary or anything like that. We know he did and we can and so like intellectually we can go back and think, "Okay, I understand why that is funny and I understand that nobody was really saying that, so some of the laughter is probably just shock and that sort of thing." Uh but I wonder how many comedians we like now that are like pushing some sort of boundary, although I I, I can't think of I can't think of any off the top of my head because part of me is like, well, I feel like all the boundaries have been pushed now. <laughs> um, but but that might be a blind spot that I that I have. And so so I think I think it's interesting, especially with something as totally subjective, and I think very very present as comedy. You'll get people when you say like, "Who's the best comedian?" I, I'm sure people who were able to see. Bill Hicks and see that no one was talking about no one's talking about this no one talks about the Kennedys like this and then you're just like oh my gosh this is this is amazing even if what he's saying is funny but not a not a amazing and so I think there's actually even with something like this when there are people who are groundbreaking and you think this is that you don't get funnier than this even if people have gotten funnier than that since then you acknowledge, well, they probably wouldn't have if not for this. That's all well and good, but that doesn't mean that this is the humor pinnacle. They just enabled someone like a Doug Stanhope to be who they are and possibly surpass them when it comes to laughs. And so I think this is where a certain degree of nostalgia and understanding of the culture at the time comes into play. And so it, it is interesting when you run across someone like like a but Lenny. there's a difference. Uh, we're still getting back to the first half of the episode. There's mm. a difference between nostalgia and context. You know, right. if it were if it were nostalgia, I would still think that like Carrot Top or I don't know. <laughs> that's a bad example because I don't think I watched. Carrot I, Top. I don't think I ever found him funny. Yeah, whoever was 
on TV when I was a kid who's not funny now. Well, there was know. a time Gallagher? when... Gallagher? Yeah, there, sure. I was going to say. There was a time when like VH1 would show a Gallagher special every Saturday night, uh-huh. edited for basic cable, but you still got the idea across, and I watched them every <laughs> week. Yeah. Um, Some of his bits, by the way, are still funny. They have nothing to do with props and nothing to do with the Sledge-O-Manic, but yeah. he was surprisingly good with wordplay. Sure. But... Um, and I guess the the thing that came to mind, Tyler, when you were talking a minute ago, uh, specifically about Bill Hicks and the time frame in which he operated, I guess if we were going to put him in context, the other major, really successful, shocking comic at the time was Andrew Dice Clay. Mm-hmm. But he was shocking for a completely different reason. Right. And I would say that maybe one of the reasons why Andrew Dice Clay hasn't endured is that he wasn't trying to be relevant. He he wasn't even really trying to make a point most yeah. of the time. Uh now we don't know if Bill Hicks say had survived if he would have gone the way of you know like a Bill Maher or even a David Cross and just become or Dennis Miller Dennis say, Miller and just become yeah. a crank. Yeah. Um, I found myself on the drive here earlier. I found myself wondering, man, I wonder if anybody's ever going to talk about Mitch Hedberg the same way they talk about Bill Hicks or I think they or do. Andy Kaufman. I think a lot of people uh, really. I-, I love Mitch Hedberg. I thought he was very very funny, but I mm-hmm. think. And there's also there's the the early death aspect, right? Of, and of that also him. ties in with Lenny Bruce. Yeah. And you know, you wonder what else would they have done, right? You know, uh, comparing that say with Richard Pryor, mm-hmm. who, you know, he lost several years near the end of his life because of his illness, but he was he was still productive up into his later life. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with George Carlin. Yeah. George Carlin did a new what hour special every year, every two years, I think every couple of years. Yeah. And I don't think there was ever a significant drop-off in quality on him. So, you know, if you were a fan of George Carlin in 2005, you could go back and watch a Carlin special from 1987. Mm-hmm. And even without the filter of nostalgia, acknowledge, wow, this guy has a lot to say, and he's really funny when he does it. And I, I wonder if maybe that's the – if that's – well, I, this might be – this is probably too limiting now that I think about it. But uh, I wonder if that is the mark of the great comics is they can be – Specific to their time, but also general enough that anybody can return to that, maybe knowing a little bit about that time, but maybe even only just a little bit, and still find it as funny. Um, but I don't know about that. Um, we should probably start uh, you know, leaning toward the finish line here. Um, but there's, I just wanted to, maybe this is just the um, liberal white guilt PC in me. We haven't really talked about any black comics we talked about all. Richard Pryor. We did talk about Richard Pryor. That's true. Well, you, you mentioned one Todd Glass about. has eight seconds in The Aristocrats. Pretty much so does Chris Rock. Right? Yeah. Right. And, but in those eight seconds, he makes his point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess what I wanted to say is, now we, we have specifically, for the most part, stayed away from stand-up comedy concert films. Right. Uh, right. If only because we did that topic with Graham Elwood uh, a thousand eight years, years ago. ago. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I'm, I'm, so, I'm sort of racking my brain trying to figure out what stand-up comedy documentaries there are about the black comedy scene because it's another thing that i've come to understand from all this podcast and all the stuff that's available to us about the comedy world is much like there are two americas mm-hmm. there are really kind of two comedy worlds mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's uh, heavily segregated something I, I you know i didn't bring up because it didn't necessarily tie in to the film but if, if you're talking about scholarly examinations of comedy and the history of comedy uh there are some books. Mm-hmm. Um, I read one a, little, a couple of years ago when I was working at a bookstore called Tim and Tom about Tim Reed and Tom Dreesen, mm-hmm. who were the first and I think they claim to be the only interracial comedy team. I saw uh, 
at the last uh, podcastathon, I was there and Tom Dreesen was there and he was talking and it was really interesting to hear some of the stories that that he told um, because in some markets everyone hated Tim. In other markets, everyone hated Tom, and it was really just like, wow, we just can't please anybody, it would appear. <laughs> I, I guess if I was going to speculate, I would say one of the reasons why there's probably less of those kinds of documentaries is because there's probably just less archival footage. I mean, yeah. there was never a big press to, to get film of those, of those comedians like there was with Phyllis Diller or Don Rickles or mm-hmm. Joan Rivers or anybody who's got a documentary about them. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I guess I guess it did, it occurred to me. Yeah, like we've been thinking about documentaries that talk about comedy in general, but I in thinking about this, I didn't even think about Joan Rivers or like Mr. Warmth or anything like that. Um but uh huh, that's an, and both of those are very good. Mr. Warmth is really interesting. Um, cuz you see like I, I I still find Don Rickles funny, but at the same time some of his humor is pretty pretty dated yeah uh, well I, and i will admit to uh to the fact that i have not seen the kings of comedy the queens of comedy or the latin kings of comedy my understanding is those are more concert films yeah we yeah. saw in together uh, back when tyler and i used to hang out socially um in springfield missouri we saw we saw the original kings of comedy and, and i liked it a lot at the time and now like when i think about those particular comics i still like bernie mac a lot but yeah, Cedric the Entertainer is still pretty funny. He, he's he's had some stuff, but is there anything in it that is like about being a black comic, or is it just a concert film of those guys? Uh, I mean, like a lot of um, uh, there's ah <laughs> oh, damn it, never. Mind. I wanted to quote a comedian his joke, but I can't remember who it was, so I won't quote the whole joke because I don't want to do it. Anyway, I'll see if I remember. Um, no, I, basically, he was just saying like. Okay, the joke was it was the it was a stand-up comedy a comedian who was white and fat, and he said uh, a lot of my black comedy friends say that it's hard to be a black comic and not write jokes about being black. For me, as a fat comic, it's hard to not write jokes about McDonald's. <laughs> um, that was really funny, and now I can't remember who said it's it. Probably Ralphie May. I could no, see no, it, it was a, it's a younger guy. I saw okay. him at John Caparulo. No, I, I saw him in person. Oh, and I saw him do that joke multiple, multiple times, and I thought it was funny, and I can't remember. But anyway. Um, so yeah, but to to your point about the original Kings of Comedy, I, I don't know if they really explore the idea, but still, uh, as a lot of as is true of a lot of black comedians, a lot of the jokes are about being black, mm-hmm. and and the bulk of the audience in the film, the, the vast majority mm-hmm. uh, is black, and uh, and it's clear, like I mean, when we went to see it, like I st- you know, funny's funny, and I still laughed at a lot of those jokes. Um, but it was clear, and I don't. I don't say this when he, I don't. I'm not trying to be argumentative when I say this. But like, as you watch it, it's just like this is not for me. Yeah. It's when I say it's not for me. I mean, I can still find it funny, but this was not meant for me. Do, yeah. do you at least culturally. Do you remember the guy? Oh yeah. This is like I said. This is in Springfield, Missouri. So proportionally, it works out. There was one black guy in the audience. There weren't a lot of people in that audience. There anyway. were, yeah, I think it had been out a few weeks at that point. Yeah. Anyway, um, but yeah, it, it wasn't that well attended. There was literally. One black guy, one black person, a guy who came alone, and during, like, before the trailer started, he stood up and, like, made an announcement to people. He was like, listen, I want to let you know I'm sorry. I'm going to be that black guy who's yeah. making a lot of noise and laughing really hard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh. And I thought it was very funny. Yeah, yeah. I, I ended up being that guy when I saw Revenge of the Sith in the theater. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, 
I think that might be a good note to start wrapping up. Okay. Uh, what, we didn't get to Joan Rivers, uh, really. We just even only mentioned Mr. Warmth, which is the Don Rickles well, documentary. One thing that I just wanted to touch on, Tyler, uh, in, in relation to that last topic, was that you know I, I'm, I made this list of just documentaries. I didn't talk about concert films. Or I, you know, I, I'm sorry I have not listened to your episode. But when I think of the most popular comedy concert films, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, Bill Cosby. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what that says about the audiences that were in those theaters when they made those movies or about the audience that went to go see those movies. But I have to assume they have you know, widespread appeal. So when we're talking about, I guess if the question is, why do we as three middle class white guys uh-huh. not have anything to say about black comics, there's a certain degree that maybe we don't relate to it. But it doesn't. I, I like Richard Pryor's comedy. I we had the tape of Bill Cosby himself, and we watched it, you know, maybe once every two months growing up in our house. Uh-huh. Uh, so, and to and to bring this actually back into something that I wanted to mention is we actually have not spoken a great deal about comedian, which I think is maybe like the 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 best thing about not the best thing about, but like it might be the best example of these types of movies because it incorporates everything. It has. How neurotic comedians can be on their way up and on their way down. You know, you look at someone like Orny Adams in the film, and he just and he is on his way up. He's doing well, but he cannot enjoy it. He just keeps pushing himself. But then you have someone on the on top like Jerry Seinfeld who can't really enjoy himself there either. And the idea that everyone's always looking up, everyone's always saying like, "Okay, I may be on top, but there's someone above me." And of course, the pinnacle in the film is is Bill Cosby. Mm. And there's a really interesting scene where. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld is talking with Chris Rock, and Chris Rock is talking about, I just went and saw Bill Cosby, who did like two straight hours, and was just killing, and was amazing, even at, you know, even at his age, it was just astounding. And he probably closed with his bit about the dentist. Probably, I don't know, I did, they didn't show. But, uh, but more than likely, yes. Uh, Obakabe, right? Um, and so it's, so I, and, but also it talks about, and, it's been a while since I've seen it. I, I think this is actually in the film and not in the special features. That's another movie that has great deleted scenes, great special features. But that's also about like construction of a joke and how I think this is a special feature where um, Jerry is talking about he, he his name. You know, he has kind of the names of bits, and so he's like, "There's this one, and then there's there's karate, and then there's this." He's like, "I try to make this one work." And, you know, I try to nurture it, and I try to make it fly, and then it just falls flat. Meanwhile, this dumb joke over here that I don't care about, that one just flies no, without any effort at all. And so it's just interesting to see – and him talking about, like – he goes, yeah, he's like, comedians talk about, like, where, you know, where their jokes come from. Like, they know. I don't know where any of these jokes come from. They just come to me, and then I write them down, and I laugh at them. And, and I like his honesty in that, that he's not trying to – I feel like the film sort of tries to, in one sense, demystify the comedian by just saying, like, saying, like, look, I could try to break it down for you uh, as if it's some kind of amazing process. It isn't. I thought something was funny. I wrote it down, and it turns out it was. That worked out well. Um, but in doing so, they also serve to make it a little bit more, a little bit more mystical because it's just like, well, I don't think of funny things. <laughs> What's so special about these guys? Yeah. And so there's a lot of there's a lot going on with comedian, uh, both in what is seen and what is said, that makes it to me very very recommendable. And I think it's all of these 
all these movies rolled into one. Uh, so that's that's the one that I like the most, perhaps even more than the Aristocrats. Uh, run down what else was on your list, real quick, well, that we didn't get to. You know, there, there's a, without a, much discussion. There's a whole lot of the uh, uh, specific comedian mm-hmm. documentaries that we didn't get to talk about, but I don't I don't feel a great need to address those. You know, maybe maybe that'll be fodder for a future episode. Sure. Watch out, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but uh, there, there is some. There, what you just said did bring to mind something that I'd wanted to mention early, and I'll, I'll tie it into what you just said. Mm. Uh, in my own we'll development, up, right? yes, yes. In my in my own development, <laughs> do you even comic, enjoy doing this, David? Uh, for the for about an hour and a half, I enjoy doing this every week. All right, fair enough. <laughs> okay, uh, I've I've had the experience where I had a bit that I do that I like, and one time I was performing it, and I just sort of riffed a tag at the end, and it got a very good response, and so it became a part of that bit, and I don't know what it is about this part of the joke that is funny mm-hmm. but it always gets a laugh so it stays in and it's not it's not one of those things where i don't like it i just i don't get why people laugh when i say it but people always do so it's part of the act now and do, do you feel as as uh, jerry seinfeld seemed to feel do you almost feel not necessarily resentful but it's like don't you guys realize how hard i worked on this and then this little piece of shit that i just threw out <laughs> is the one that you like yeah, there, there's a bit of that. So, yes, Jerry and I have that in common. <laughs> and getting back to something that you were talking about earlier, as opposed, you know, when you were talking about just being funny versus having a message, uh, I'm always very, very pleased when I realize that a bit that I've been working on actually has a point. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a, a bit that I do where I just talk about something I observed the last time I watched Star Wars. And then working it out, talking about it, I realize, oh, I can actually say something about humanity at the end of this bit. Mm-hmm. And I, that, that always pleases me because it makes me feel like I'm doing more than just getting up there and doing a tap dance. So I, you admit it is an art form. Uh, I, Case like I say, closed. hey, I'm an artist, dude. I don't know who you think you've been dealing with. A struggling artist, please. Exactly, a struggling artist. <laughs> well, to Dave, get back to my list, David, the, ah. the only one that I didn't get to mention that I really wanted to because mm-hmm. I think there's something helpful in it, it's another documentary. It is not strictly about comedy. But it's mostly involved comedians, and it's called Fired. I don't know if either uh, of you saw it. Oh, it I've is available it. from Netflix. It's made by Anna Belgerwich. Uh, Anna, Anna, Be- Anna Beth. Anna Beth. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right? It's Anna Beth, right? I think it used it's to be the co-host Anna, of Annabelle. the movie. Oh, it is Anna Anna Gerwich, yeah. I've okay. Been, I got- I gotta apologize to her next time I see her. I've been calling her Annabeth all these years. <laughs> so she she made this film after getting fired from a play that she'd been cast in, starring Woody Allen, mm-hmm. and half of it's about dealing with being fired, and half of it is interviews with comics and actors uh, because she put together the stage show where they would get up and talk about jobs that they'd been fired from, mm-hmm. and it's it's relates to comedy in as much as it's revelatory about the comedian mindset and how maybe you. you know, if you're really meant to be a comedian, you just can't make it in the straight world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's another movie that has great deleted scenes. My Actually, my favorite part of the film is one of the deleted scenes, and it's with Dana Gould, mm. who is in oh. my top five. Yeah. And one of the things that I've loved about living in Los Angeles is the amount of times I've gotten to see him live. He's, he's a brilliant comedian, and he talks about uh, his work on a late 90s sitcom called Working that starred Fred Savage. Mm-hmm. And about the frustrations, uh, because he was fired after the first season. The second season, I think, only lasted six episodes. But uh, he talked about all the frustrations that he had during the first season and what his mindset was when he thought he was going to go back for the second season and then getting fired and how that influenced his future career decisions and you know, so, you know the way his wife talked to him about it. And it's one of those things where 
I, I compare it to a lot of people will talk about when they're frustrated in their work life or their personal life, they'll watch a movie like Rocky or Rudy, some sports film that is uplifting and will motivate them. I don't know if you guys have had that experience or heard people say that. I usually tend to uh, wallow <laughs> in uh, how I'm feeling. So, Well, not all of us have that luxury. Fair enough. <laughs> so, But when I'm feeling discouraged, I will watch or at least remind myself about that part in Fired because it really seemed to work for Dana Gould. It, it focused him, or rather it made him focus his attentions on the things he really wanted to be doing. And uh, I felt very lucky because back when I was living up in the Bay Area, it was about, when did Watchmen come out? 2009. 2009. Uh, around the, that time, he came and spoke at the Cartoon Art Museum. And uh, it was a very small, intimate venue. There were only about a dozen of us there. And I pretty much hijacked the interview because I knew more about his career than the guy interviewing him did. And I made him talk about working for 20 minutes. <laughs> and he didn't know that his scene was on the DVD. <laughs> Hmm. So, uh, you know, I, it was one of those occasions where I got to meet somebody who had inspired me and let them know that, and that was very gratifying. Hmm. So I think about Dana Gould. I also think about the movie Ed Wood when I'm feeling not motivated or discouraged, because uh, that's, that's a strangely reassuring film. He's that's got a lot of, uh, interesting. Yeah. He's got a lot of stick that Ed Wood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was a terrible artist. All right. Yeah. So Dave, you think that could be me? Dave, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you I for am having putting me. putting the fucking brakes on this podcast. Yeah. You've been putting the brakes on this podcast for two I've been, years. <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying. Um, I do want to say real quick, um, you know, the day that we're recording this is a very happy day for a lot of reasons. We got Dave on the show. He was great. Uh, it's Tyler's you. mom's birthday. It's the oh. beginning of the NHL regular season. But uh, the day is a little colored as I sit here and look at the MacBook. Yeah. Uh, with its counter in garage band that's t- inching toward the two hour mark mm. um, this is the day after Steve Jobs has passed away mm-hmm. and oh um, you mean Steve oh, I thought you were going to say Charles Napier uh, no uh, but yes but, Charles Napier uh, died mm-hmm. yeah I didn't see that I've been busy all day um, as one of my friends put it it was a Duke catastrophe <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, you know I don't no, I don't get that sentimental in this podcast, but we t- I talked about having um, respect for people who can stick to it, mm-hmm. stick to podcasts. We wouldn't probably have ever been able to start one or do what we're doing at all or uh, any of this uh, if it weren't for, for Steve Jobs. There's uh, so many uh, celebrities die all the time, and, you know, there's the... Um, even when I'm I'm not the kind of person that makes jokes about Amy Winehouse dying or or, or whatever, it's uh, I honestly don't feel it all that strongly all that often. But I think that um, Steve Jobs was not only a great contributor to uh, technology, but to he was a great American and a contributor to the human race and the future of said in general. Yeah, yeah there is. Uh, I do have a friend who actually like hates Apple products. Be- precisely because they're so user-friendly, which seems weird to me. But but that's the thing is, you know, we're sitting in a room with, oh, well, my wife has the uh, the other laptop in, in, uh, in the bedroom there. But uh, there are, in my apartment, four Apple computers. Right. Um, my and, iPhone, my iPod. Oh, yeah. I have a Android. I literally record my podcast as an audio file on my iPod. So that's... It's, you know... It, None of what we would... It's because it's so user-friendly and that he was committed to that. 
and and committed to bringing people in instead of keeping people out mm-hmm. that has enabled this show to happen at all not to mention i would say countless other shows including yours mm-hmm. and it's just i don't know not jay morris though not jay morris no way he's using adele there's no question <laughs> but uh but yeah so I, it's, I i don't know really much about computers i and and i know even less about steve jobs but uh but yes, it's it's very seldom that someone like if a celebrity dies, that is sad. Especially if I like them, I was I'm sad about Charles Napier. But um, he had a good life. He had a good run. Um, speaking of Blues Brothers, but uh, but yeah, so it's very seldom that someone dies that literally changed uh, changed the world. Yeah. At the very least, changed this country, and what's more, changed my life and just in the day to day and how it works. And uh, yes, it's uh, it's unfortunate. So let's go out on that. You can oh. get us at battleshipretention.com or in iTunes. You can uh, email us, David at battleshipretention.com, Tyler at battleshipretention.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash thepretension. Follow Tyler on Twitter at twitter.com slash more lessons, which is the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which you can get at more than one lesson.com or in iTunes. And you can find my other podcast, the weekly television review show, previously on at previouslyonshow.com or in iTunes. Uh, Dave, I cut you off when I started that. So say what you're going to say and tell people where they can find you and your uh, uh, podcast and uh, action figure customization oh, and, uh, well. side business on that, the internet. That was all I was going to say was plug myself. Uh, I am newly on Twitter. I'm just at Dave Amiot, D-A-V-E-A-M-I-O-T-T. Uh, my podcast is the Benny South Street Chronicles. It is on iTunes. There has not been a new episode in some time. Uh, I will cop to that. I have several guests lined up and... I don't think I'm speaking out of school when I'm going to say they are predominantly going to be very, very attractive young ladies. So if <laughs> right. that's a perk for your for your uh, podcast listening audience. Do they have attractive voices? Yeah, that's, that's pretty that's much all we got. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and if by any chance listening to this has made you inclined to want to see me perform and you live in the Los Angeles area, I'm going to be performing at Flappers Comedy Club in Burbank on Friday the 14th as part of the Flappers, Frunny, uh, Flappers Funny Fridays. <laughs> The 9.30 show in the Yoohoo Room. That's uh-huh. a show that's organized by my friend Heather Turman. She's been a guest on my podcast. She's a very funny comic and an excellent producer. Uh, so that should be a good show. I actually did want the most, to... The most recent episode of More Than One Lesson features... Uh, Why don't we just start doing next week's show? <laughs> All right, so yeah. comedy documentaries. Here's here's why Joan we don't Rivers do it, was not... fired. Get out of here. Um, no, I did, I did want to say... Uh, because I, I want to take the opportunity. Um, the most recent episode of More Than One Lesson features uh, a rather in-depth review of the Christian film Courageous. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm kind of proud of the episode because yeah. I felt like I gave the film a fair shake. And so uh, you can go and find that at morethanonelesson.com. Is that the a fireproof? It is. Okay. And it is, I'm going to say, 185% better than fireproof. Still not saying much. but uh, <laughs> But yeah. So... Well, with that, uh, thank you all for listening. Dave, thanks for being here. Hey, thank you for having me. This has been delightful. I agree. And, and we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>